Assembly Senate Chamber programs. Order, members, we're now in public session um, and we have a quorum. And I can have, must advise members that uh, mobile phones must be set to airplane mode or turned off. It is not sufficient to put mobiles on silent mode as they continue to interfere with the Assembly recording. This session is being recorded video and audio and can be accessed via online streaming either on the Assembly website or Democracy Live. So we're now in public session. Agenda item one is apologies. We have an apology from Ms Flynn. Any others? Okay. Agenda item two, minutes of the meeting of the 26th of November 2020, which are in your pack, pages six to ten. Are members content with these minutes? And have I your permission to sign them? Great. Okay, members, thank you. Um, declaration of members' interests. Uh, at each meeting, members are required to register relevant financial or other interests in the members' register of interests. Any member any interest to want to declare this afternoon? Mr. O'Toole. declare I, I was until um, a few years ago a UK civil servant. <coughs> I was um, a colleague of one of the people giving um, evidence to us today. Okay. Um, no others. Agenda item four then in matters arising. <laughs> Members, uh, as you may well have seen in the media, Ms Jenny Piper, former utility regulator uh, for Northern Ireland, has recently uh, been appointed as an interim head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Um, can I suggest that we write to Ms Piper congratulating her on her new appointment and informing her that we look forward to a positive engagement with her in the coming months in her role um, as interim uh, head of the civil service and suggest that perhaps that the I and the deputy chair meet with her in the new year. Uh, we might also want to bring to her attention the committee's recent inquiries into major capital projects and the current land web project and digital uh, inquiry and of course our forthcoming inquiry into capacity and capability in the civil service would also be of interest to her. Are, are members content that we do so? Any member, any comment want to make around that? Okay, thank you. Um, members, on Tuesday, the 1st of December, the Finance Minister made a statement in the Chamber regarding the structure of the new Procurement Board. The full statement can be found in your table pack, pages 3 to 6. Um, the Public Account Committee report on the major capital projects highlighted the lack of representation from the private sector, so it is very much welcomed. And uh, at this stage, I would like to quote um, an extract from the PAC report on major capital projects, if I may. The committee has heard um, from the Construction Employers Federation that it would be very keen to take uh, a place on the procurement board to ensure that the private sector could contribute to the public sector process. The committee welcomes assurances from the Department of Finance that discussions have started about the makeup of the procurement board and how often it meets. So uh, the procurement board now includes the following representatives from the construction industry, Mr Mark Spence, Managing Director of the Construction Employers Federation, and Denise McMahon, Chair of the Northern Ireland Construction Group. The board also includes representation from the manufacturing sector, 
Mary Meehan, Deputy Chief Executive of Manufacturing Northern Ireland. The Procurement Board will have its first meeting on the 16th of December. Uh, any member, any comment they wish to make on that? <coughs> well, I think this is, uh, this is something which we obviously were pushing for when we had officials uh, in front of us, and it's good that uh, that message has been listened to and those appointments made. Uh, that can only lead, in my view, to better joint upness across government and the views of the private sector being taken into consideration around uh, the governance uh, going forward. Agenda item 5 is correspondence, uh, pages 14 to 40, and I refer to the correspondence dated the 25th of November 2020 from Ms Sue Gray, the Accounting Officer, Department <coughs> Secretary, Department of Finance, pages 14 to 38 of your pack, in response to our letter on the 9th of November 2020 regarding additional information on the LAMWeb project and digital transformation. <coughs> Members, Ms. Gray has confirmed that a senior business owner of the account NI and EHR contracts has been appointed Mr. John Crosby. The updated information uh, requested is highlighted in the red tables attached to Annex A, pages 16 to 38. Ms. Gray states that the absence of regular reporting of the annual project accounts to the department was a symptom of poor contract management which is now being addressed and with a dedicated contract team that all the project accounts to date have been addressed and that she will be requesting that the 2020-21 accounts uh, as soon as the financial year completes. Ms Gray also states that BT has taken steps to ensure that the any and full future obligations regarding project accounts are prepared and audited in line with contract timescales and that the contract management team uh, are meeting with the BT regularly to manage this process. Are members uh, happy enough that we consider this next week? Because I think rather than, than discuss it here today, we're going to be discussing these issues next week, and I think it would be more timely, and we can give more time to it next week in a more in-depth way. Obviously, we would welcome what we've just heard, uh, but I think if, if members are content that we would leave it and discuss it next week. Are members content? Great. Thank you. Members are referred to correspondence dated the 27th of November 2020 from Ms Suzanne Wiley, Chief Executive of Belfast City Council, which is in your packs, pages 39-40, regarding the blue light regulations in Casement Park. Ms Wiley has referred to this to John Walsh, the City Solicitor, who will respond in due course. Mr Walsh is also the Legal Services Manager at City Hall. As you will remember, um, we had an initial response from Mr Thatcher, the Head of Planning at City Hall, in response to our letter uh, to evidence that was given by, to the committee a few weeks ago by the team from the Department of Communities. And we were seeking clarity. Uh, the letter from Mr Thatcher, I don't think, I think we were all in agreed, did not provide that clarity. So we asked, uh, uh, agreed last week, that I would write to Ms Wiley. That letter has been sent. And obviously, it's been referred uh, to the town solicitor. So, um, really, I uh, don't think the clarity that we, perhaps we were being given at committee the, the week, week was indeed clarity that uh, we all thought it was going to be, nor the clarity the Belfast City Council uh, thinks it's going to be. So, I know Mr. Hillich, you had raised it last week. Are you anything you want to raise around that? No, I think it's just disappointing that we're no further on in this one, Chair. We seem to be just getting pushed about from. To another. Yeah. I really think we do need clarity on where mistakes were made in the past so that things can move on. <clears throat> I know around these issues Mr Walsh was in front of the old decal committee 
uh, going back a number of years ago, um, and uh, as were a number of the Belfast City Council directors who are now retired. Um, but and I, I would have thought it would be fairly simple uh, that, uh, to come back with that clarity initially, and here we are two letters later with no cl clarity and it being passed to the town solicitor. So we await uh, Mr Walsh's response and uh, we'll deal with it at that point. Is that okay, members? Okay. Members, I refer, refer to the restricted <coughs> correspondence dated um, 1st of December 2020 from Sir Long, the CEE of uh, the Education Authority, in your table pack, pages 10 to 19. The committee had requested further information on any impact the ongoing internal HR process might have had on progressing the recommendations coming out of the Northern Ireland Audit Office reports. Ms Long has provided in her response specific and detailed uh, information in Appendix A, sorry, Appendix 1 regarding the progress that has been achieved since the implementation of the statutory operations improvement plan. Uh, please note this information. Has any member any comment? Well, the only thing I would say is um, I'm, I'm not sure that the clarity we're seeking around the, the separation on the potential of an independent inquiry and the HR investigation is there at the moment uh, when you look at the correspondence. So uh, it may be that um, uh, we come back, I can ask members, have we look at that and come back to that mm -hmm. next week? Uh, um, because I'm not, I'm not convinced it is there. Okay? Members agreed? Agreed. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, members, agenda item six is the inquiry into um, capacity and capability in the Northern Ireland Civil Service, pages 42 to 170 of your pack. And at this stage, I'd like to invite Ms. Sue Gray, the Accounting Officer for the Department of Finance, Ms. Jill Min, Head of Northern Ireland Civil Service EHR. Uh, Department of Finance, Ms. Michelle Woods, Director of Civil Service HR, and Ms. Anne Breen, Learning and Development Lead, Civil Service HR, are attending remotely. Uh, in attendance will be Mr. Donnelly and uh, Mr. Stuart Stevenson, the TOA, is attending remotely. Can I just check if um, Ms. Woods, Ms. Breen, uh, and Mr. Stevenson can hear us and see us okay? We, we can see you, but so far can't yes, hear anybody. Yes, Chair, I can see you. Okay. okay. Ms. Woods, can you hear us? Yes, Chair, I, I can see you. Thank you. And Jonathan, can you hear us? You speak in case you don't see him. Mr. Stevens, can you hear us? No. It will be a week we actually manage to get everybody. <laughs> Mr. Stevenson, can you hear us okay? <laughs> 2020. <laughs> Can you hear us? It's on mute. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Can I can I suggest we just we just take take a short break until we yeah. establish contact? And more and more, <laughs> and more, and more, more calling Orson. This is the Northern. Okay, order. Um, Apologies for that, members. It, it appears that contact has been restored. Um, so, uh, welcome to Sue Gray, Jill Min, you're very welcome, and to those Anne and Michelle joining us remotely. I'm glad to hear, Mr. Stevens, you can hear us okay. So, at this stage, um, uh, 
if you want to make some opening yep. remarks, and then I'll ask members to ask questions. Okay. Thank you thank very you. much. Um, well, thank you for the invitation to attend today and to provide evidence to the committee on the Audit Office report on capacity and capability in the NICS. I welcome the constructive engagement of both the Audit Office and this committee on these issues. We all want the same thing, which is to provide the best possible public services to the people of Northern Ireland. Although this is an NICS-wide review, uh, the Department of Finance, as the department with responsibility for these business areas, has been working closely with the Audit Office through its investigation and also with other colleagues in other departments. It's a timely report and sets out the long-term transformational journey that the NICS is on to improve its capacity and capability. Importantly, the report acknowledges that the civil service has continued to deliver vital services against a backdrop of unprecedented and challenging circumstances. I think the context of this report is also very important. Since joining in May 2018, the civil service uh, that I've come into has faced unprecedented challenges. There's been no executive for three years. We've got the new decade, new approach. Uh, we've got Brexit, COVID, and we've got a civil service post-RHI. And against all of this, the civil service has continued to deliver. Um, it's vital the public have confidence that the civil service can and will de deliver public services, and we want to be judged by our actions. I am hugely proud of what the civil service has achieved. In my own department, the Land and Property Service has repurposed itself to be a grant-giving body and is now currently engaged in the large, largest business support scheme we have here. The team are working seven days a week to get payments to businesses. The Account NI team is doing the same to make sure the money gets paid. We've devised and implemented schemes to support our airports. We've provided a £300 million rate support package to help businesses. And we're actively looking ahead to next year with how best to target support. We've delivered on top of that nearly £300 million of business grants, which is a combination of a 10K grant scheme and the current support. We've delivered support to businesses who contract with government to keep money flowing when contracts come to be worked on. And this sort of work is happening across all departments, and I'm immensely proud of what the civil service is doing. This is all against a backdrop of a very different working environment for the civil service. People have readily accepted the different ways of working um, that they have and that they're in line with the latest guidance. Positively, the NIAO report identifies many of the issues already included in the programme of work outlined in the NICS People Strategy, which was put in place in early 2018 to address a number of long-standing organisational developments people and leadership issues, including those raised in a number of reports, such as the RHI inquiry. I fully acknowledge that there's still more to do, and there's been, but there's been progress made in many of the areas highlighted by the NIAO. We've been uh, doing external recruitment campaigns uh, in large scale at grades that has actually this is uh, unprecedented for. We've also introduced new approaches to workforce and recruitment planning, developed and delivered a range of learning and development initiatives, including commercial skills training and development in the areas of contract and project management and digital and cyber skills. And it wasn't that long ago that I was here talking about all of that. I'm mindful that the, NIO, that the Audit Office report notes that the issues raised are not issues alone for the NICSHR function, nor the Department of Finance, and they will require senior leadership commitment across the civil service. 
but I recognise that my department has a key enabling role and I'm committed to working closely with senior leaders across all NICS departments and other key stakeholders. I think the report, when I, you know, when I look at the report, I think it will also be a really helpful, um, very helpful for our work that we're going to start on reform of the civil service. <coughs> I look forward to the discussion. Okay, thank you. Um, and I think it's important to put on record our thanks to those in the civil service, particularly in your own department and economy, are working to process grants that are much needed. Uh, I know, having been in my office this morning, you know that is continuum. Yeah. For constituency members, in terms of business people out there, are very concerned uh, about monies being being um, released as soon as possible because it literally is for many of those yeah. businesses a, a lifeline, and if they don't get it and don't get it soon, they're going to be in very very difficult circumstances. Um, and I and I really do understand that, and um, you know, dealing with a lot of questions myself from MLAs and others, and today I think our latest figures are we paid out nearly 45 million. Um, on the business grant scheme, the business support scheme that we've got now, but you know we've got more to do. Um, but very, very aware of how businesses and individuals are feeling. Okay, can I just ask, um, in terms of the, and I accept that you are responsible only for your own department, um, and, and this this report is wide-reaching across the Northern Ireland civil service, um, but. In, in reading the report and having a discussion last week and listening to evidence from the, the Comptroller and Auditor General and his team, we, we were very concerned about a range of issues which members will obviously take the opportunity to raise with you now. But some of the things that struck me were it would appear that five government departments had no work plan, workforce plan in place. Five government departments in the Northern Ireland Civil Service, 2020, 1920. No work. I mean, how can how can an organisation the size of the civil service and the departments, the respective departments we're talking about here, how can that be the case? So I think the Department of Finance is one of those departments that uh, is one of the five. Um, at the time when that work, and I think there's been a lot of work over the years, but you know most recently when uh, the work was being compiled, I did, uh, you know, my teams did contribute to a workforce plan. Um, when I looked at it, what I became what I became concerned about was that the the numbers uh, that were put in on the workforce plan were very high, um, and you know it would have been unaffordable in many areas. But also, what I re what I wanted to do was uh, take that workforce plan and start looking at the skills gaps and the the, the development that was needed. And a lot of the work that I've been here. Um, a little while ago explaining about around contract management, um, around commercial skills. You know, that's the work that we've been doing alongside that. So <coughs> we are now in the process of um, updating our workforce plan, but with that other information as well, which I think is also very important. But there's still a lot more to do. But I was one of the departments, and it was mainly because I think... Uh, some may have thought this was an this was an exercise to say what you would really like, um, whereas actually you know mm. there needs to be some challenge to that, and then COVID and other things intervene. Yeah, you will know from from your previous appearances uh, in front of the committee. The committee is very keen to see that when eventually the government appoints a new head of the civil service, that that civil servant. That senior civil servant would actually be the accounting officer for the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Um, uh, because in terms of the 
most recent head of the civil service when he was in front of us said that um, uh, he did not have that, that authority or responsibility, uh, which I know a number of members were shocked about. Going forward, I think we think as a committee, and uh, 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 we have unanimously reached that position, the, the Northern Ireland Civil Service needs to become rather like I think the Scottish Civil Service, where the head of the Civil Service does have that role and responsibility. Um, because with, you know, you're in front of us today, and you're the accounting officer for finance, but there are four other permanent secretaries out there who are in the same position as you, um, and yet the head of the civil servants currently would not have the power to intervene, it would appear. Would that be right? Um, well, you know, we are departments in our own right, mm. um, and I think that is what is, you know, and uh, we all have our own powers. Um, I think that, you know, if, if you know, the uh, interim head of the civil service has concerns or my, you know, or her predecessor <coughs> have concerns about how I am working, and then I would expect them to, you know, actually to have a discussion about all of that. Um, but we are considering that recommendation as part of your the current report into major capital projects, um, and you know that is that is under discussion. We will yeah. be coming back on that. Yeah, and just so you know, we we just taken a decision prior to you coming in that um, uh, I will write to Ms. Piper uh, asking her to meet the deputy chair and I to discuss uh, a number of issues, including the issue I've just raised with you. Yeah. You will understand in, in 2020 that the head of the civil service would ring any given permanent secretary and raise an issue but not have the power to do it, deal with it. That seems incredible to us, uh, to be honest. Um, but we are where we are in terms of that, and hopefully that will be rectified going forward. The other issue is some people in temporary post for four years. Yeah. I mean, um, there are conclusions one might reach over the fact that someone sitting in a temporary post over four years you know, what, what's being done to address that issue within the civil service? Yeah. So, um, first of all, I think the, the HR team provide a really helpful report to us um, at regular intervals, showing us a lot, of, you know, including a lot of data in that report, including our temporary promotions by department. Um, what I have done in my own department is um, I do want to reduce the numbers of temporary promotions. Um, and what I have done in my own department is sit down with my great, you know, my, my leaders and actually go through um, with them all of their temporary promotions and actually understand uh, why people are on temporary promotion, understand whether we have got <coughs> a supply situation which can change that, and actually have a plan for getting out of that, you know, in, 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 in a short, fairly short time. Mm. I think that for, for a number of years here, uh, there was a recruitment freeze, um, and you know there, there wasn't any external recruitment. That brings a lot of a lot of problems with it, and so you know people would have been temporary promoted. Um, uh, I think as a result of that, but we are you know I can only speak about in my own department, but that is definitely what we are doing. We've discussed it as a uh, permanent secretary group um, quite recently, and we are all in the same place about what we want to do and where we want to get to. Mr Bates, do you want to come in? Just very briefly on uh, a, an extended temporary promotion. At what period does employment law actually make that a permanent position? Or does it? Well, I don't, I don't know um, 
at what at the exact legal position, but um, you know we have a policy in the NICS where it is about recruitment through open, you know, through fair and open competition, and promotion boards are the same. Um, so you know we would try to. Uh, the aim is to fill vacancies through competition. Um, I, I think it would be a difficult thing to uh, you know, go against, actually, probably the legislation to make people permanent or substantive on the basis of a length of time. Unless there's employment law that says if you're in a position a certain length of time, it becomes yeah. automatically. I, I, no, is it, are there not some employment rights mm. coming with service? No, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yes, please. Yeah, um, you don't mind me um, coming in here. Uh, those employment rights are really in relation to fixed term contracts. But these people are temporary, um, so these people are substantive employees of the civil service. So they have a substantive post, but they've been temporarily promoted to um, a position above them. So you can't have two employment law contracts, if you like, at the same time. So while I think it is not where we would want to be in terms of having people, you know, temporarily promoted for that length of time, absolutely not. It, that, that employment law doesn't specifically re relate to that. It relates to people with one fixed-term contract, and it comes after four years. And certainly follow that up um, with specific DSO advice, if that would be helpful. Yeah, that would be good. Okay, Mr. Beggs. Yep, thank you. Um, and look, I accept, and it's not that we're trying to be awkward and inflexible no, here, that. but I accept someone goes off maternity leave, someone's yeah, ill, things on. But uh, and and the, and the recruitment freeze, but it is rather hard to understand how someone yeah. could be in a temporary post for four years. Yeah, and I, and I and I first of all I do accept that I think we will always need to have temporary promotions. Um, there will be the circumstances you've described, but I fully accept that. But I think that you know that is where now. Um, you know, we are actually having those very active discussions. We've now got, I think we've talked about a, a supply situation at certain grades of people coming in from exter externally um, and also within the service. So I think that is work that is really underway. I, uh, you know, within my own department, um, you know, I will need some people on temporary promotion, but I actually, um, you know, I am at being very active about reducing the numbers that I have got on temporary promotion. Some of them are quite long-standing. Okay, a, a number, a number of uh, members were very concerned as well around the issue of agency costs. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm right, um, my notes here, uh, agency costs will increase by 155 percent, uh, and I think the the um, the cost over four years. In terms of agency workers, the Northern Ireland Civil Service, something like £150 million. Bind. So I think that I would say for both Jill and I, we are completely uh, together on, um, you know, I don't think, we don't want to see as many agency staff as we currently have. We want to make, uh, we want to have permanent people in our position, in our jobs. But there will, there will always be a need for agency staff as well, but not in the numbers that we've got. Um, I think, you know, people deserve to have <coughs> permanent contracts uh, where they can. I think also I would say that quite a lot of our agency spend is around DWP. Uh, we do a lot of work here on behalf of DWP, but it is a DWP service. Um, and, you know, we uh, have no, I suppose, you know, that service, they could decide to take that service elsewhere. This is where the civil servants based in Northern Ireland provide service to uh, the civil service nationally. Well, nationally. No, so the Department for Communities 
is operating a lot of services on behalf of the DWP in terms of payment yeah. of benefits. Yes. But that is a DWP function that they have asked the DFC to, to do. Yeah. That, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, so, um, and, you know, that, and, and actually, you know, that, that is working very well, but most of them will be agency staff. So I don't know if Jill wants to add yeah. anything more on the agencies. Yes, if that's okay. Um, in relation to agency staff, I mean, it is definitely something that we are actively looking at, which is why we launched um, the external recruitment competition, which is a very large-scale competition for administrative officers. Um, the vast majority um, of um, agency workers are in that AO grade. 81% um, are at the AO grade, and 71% of those are in DFC. Um, and that's you know where you will get that DWP work. So, 44% of them are working in DWP. <coughs> we launched an administrative officer competition because that's obviously where the real you know area of, of need is. Um, we have been asked by departments to supply 900 AOs, and we ha now have a supply of 1,700. We had to, because of COVID, go about recruiting those in a very different way, obviously with all the social distancing measures in place. And we can't bring in 900 people all in one go, but we have them sitting ready because obviously the departments need to phase them in a way to make sure that we're complying with the executive um, guidelines around COVID. But, so that will, you know, that will help dramatically with that because that's where the vast majority mm. of, of those people are. Um, and they are covering, the agency workers are covering vacancies. Um, not the best way to do it, but... Well, can I ask, are these, these 900 um, additional um, civil servants that are being recruited, is this following um, a skills audit? Because one of the things that we find striking as well is that uh, only four departments, that are the Northern Ireland departments, had carried out skills audits. I think most. I think for the competition that Jill is talking about, um, the AO competition, that would be a, a very much an entry grade. Mm -hmm. So actually, most of them will be coming in to, uh, you know, to take on roles that are currently covered by agency workers providing, uh, providing admin work. Yeah, but but notwithstanding that, it's been very much a case that we have tried to focus. You know, we've. I think there's there's um, discussion in the NIAO report about. Uh, looking at job roles and getting the right people into into the right posts. So, you know, 65% of the civil service is actually in the general service grade. But within that, then, you will have areas where you need to look at getting the right people in, in, in the right roles. So for these roles, we have very much focused on them being um, customer. They're, they're sort of front-end Mm. If you're working in DFC in particular, you're, you're in the front line and you have to have customer service skills. So we developed bespoke tests that tested those skills to try to you know, get them in instead of a generic uh, sort of general service approach. I mean, one of the things that uh, we found was that, reading the report, that out of the 22,000 people in the Northern Ireland civil service, in terms of permanent civil servants, 19 were... Um, unsatisfactory. 19 out of 22,000. That suggests to me that whoever was carrying out the uh, investigations either didn't carry them out or took a fairly indifferent attitude to them. I can't believe for a moment that of 22,000 people, 19 were unsatisfactory in terms of their performance. I just find that incredible. 
um, and and uh, you know I'm not going to um, labour that point, but I think that is something which, whenever the people of Northern Ireland will have heard that, they equally will have found that incredible. And when you add that alongside the five government departments with no workplace or workforce plan and four departments, only four departments with a skills audit. It's not a very good picture that's emerging about the civil service and how it's looking to place itself going forward in terms of future planning. Uh, and I think there's a huge amount of work that the civil service needs to do around that. And one of the things in terms of skills, and I'll finish at this point and let other members come in, uh, it's my view, uh, and, and having had various uh, permanent secretaries in front of us and indeed the SIB themselves, uh, is it is it the, the the aim or the goal of the Northern Ireland Civil Service to actually work and develop the civil service that the SIB is no longer needed, that the skill set would actually be in house in the Northern Ireland Civil Service to carry out the functions and role of the, the Strategic Investment Board? I mean, I, I would say that I think there there will probably always be a role for the Strategic Investment Board um, in terms of. The strategic projects, the big projects, you know, perhaps at an early stage, but certainly um, I would want to see, um, you know, the skills and expertise. I think we have got a lot of it already, but getting more of it, uh, so that actually the strategic investment board focuses uh, on being that strategic investment board. Um, at the moment, I think you know we do rely heavily on them for um, a lot of our a lot of our skills, but we do have. You know, we do have a lot of people ourselves as well, ourselves as well, that are actually delivering in these areas. Okay, thank you, Mr. Hildish. Thanks, Chair. And just following on from your line of question there on performance and management, uh, given the absolute astonishing statistic, it only 19 staff out of workforce of 22,000 have been given on satisfactory performance in 1718. I think that related to you here last week, uh, Ms. Gray. That when my generation were leaving school, it was a thing to do to get a job in the civil service because it was easier getting out of the Crumlin Road jail than it was getting out of the civil service. It was the place to be. So whether that's changing or not, that aspect I don't know. But how, 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 are, you going to, how are you going to make it fit for purpose uh, and come down on, on some sort of current performance system within the civil service to, to crack that nut? So, I mean, this is a, it's a very difficult area, and I'm going to let Jill talk about it in, in a minute, about the work that we've got going on. But actually, I've come from the civil service where we have uh, a performance-related pay system and a performance-related ma management system, performance management system. I would say there are some positives in that, but there are an awful lot of negatives. Um, we would spend quite a lot of time uh, sitting in a room talking about individuals um, because it was all about their pay and actually not necessarily, because I think in a way here there's an awful lot of things to be said uh, as a, on the plus side about the performance management system here and that it's, you know, it's, not that, it's not linked to the top 25% getting everything. Um, but I do think that for me performance management is very important but more, you know, as important and if not more importantly is the, uh, the development discussions that you have at the time of doing the performance appraisal. It shouldn't just be an annual thing. It should be throughout the year. Um, but, you know, and I think there's some really good work that I think Anne actually is leading on around develop developing um, 
our talent. I'm not sure we, I'm not sure any of us really quite like that word, but you know, developing our people, um, and uh, that for me is the most critical thing. And I think if we can get to a point where we are having those discussions alongside our performance management discussions, I think that will make a very big difference. And, and would that lead to the satisfactory staff st still striving to improve their performance? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I think no matter where you are um, and no matter what, what, what level you're at, no matter what sort of performer you are, you, can, you are always striving to do better. Um, or to improve uh, and to develop yourself. That is always going to be a case. But I, I, if it's okay, I'd like to ask Anne to perhaps uh, talk about some of that work that she's been doing, which is really, really good. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, so I, I think I would have to reiterate quite an important bit uh, for us in terms of our performance management system is that we really do try to concentrate on identifying issues early and supporting people and making sure that they have the right support to be able to develop to a point where they are developing working satisfactorily and that's always been key for us but what's um in terms of our system and we, we we did previously have a five box system we had a lot of issues in that around people feeling well why not box three not box two and that's what, and really what we find is throughout all of this is it's the development conversations are absolutely key to that we have um started uh, we've worked on uh, uh introducing new development conversation guides for our managers so that they can have those conversations right through the assessment period, not just at the end of the time, but they're regularly aware of what support do their people need, how will they move them to being able to move into that satisfactory category. Um, and as well as that, that too, what we're very keen to do is to make sure that the people themselves become very involved in that. So our guides are both for line managers and also for our staff as well, so they know what development opportunities opportunities are available for them and that has been a key focus for us over the last two years and I think that that's something that is really important irrespective of the system we use the system will only be as good as those conversations that are happening within that system well could uh, maybe somebody explain to them again again in the year 2017-18 highlights over a thousand members of staff for whom there was no explanation given as to why they didn't have a rating Award it. So that obviously um, is, you know, is not something that we would wish to see. Um, I think that yeah, there'll be there'll be a variety of reasons for it, but everybody should be having that 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 conversation and that marking recorded. So that is that is a big piece of work for us to 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 ensure that that happens, um, and that is something that we want to do. We will be looking. I mean, we will. You know, we're constantly looking. What were the reasons for it? Pardon. What were the reasons? Sometimes it will be that uh, an individual may be, uh, you know, they just. They haven't agreed to a meeting or they haven't been able to get a meeting in the diaries, workloads, they may be off, maybe off sick, they may, you know, there may be a, there may be a variety of reasons. If you, if you don't mind, if yeah. I can come in. Um, around 50% of those people would have been on maternity leave or on sick leave or, or you know, career break or, or whatever it might be. That still leaves the remainder who didn't, you know, who, di who didn't have them. There are times, I have to say, where 
They may have been undertaken, but they're not recorded on the system. We get our information, um, management information, from the HR Connect system. Um, but we do monitor it. So from an HR perspective, we monitor it um, at, at regular points. And um, it's up to the departments and the line managers within the departments to carry that out. It is actually you know, a, a, a year-long process. It isn't just the end of the year. So at the start of the process, you actually agree objectives and you agree a, a plan. You then do a mid-year review and you then do your year-end review and we monitor all of those. And as Anne um, has said, we have then now introduced work. Well, we've developed and we're just about to roll out um, tools for line managers to make sure that they actually have those more conversations more regularly, that it isn't just you know, three times a year. Did they year. not have the tools before? Well, a lot of people do, but because it's the line managers who do it, we felt that it was necessary for us to just give, you know, to sort of give them support. So, for example, and we've also reviewed the performance management policy, and we've trained line managers in it. We have produced videos, we've given guidance notes. So we're really trying to get that culture of performance management not being an end-of-year tick box. It's actually an ongoing process. We have um, development programmes at every grade in the civil service, and within those development programmes, we have talked about, you know, for line managers, we've talked about the need to manage performance. So actually, by the end of the year, you wouldn't want to see too many. The numbers, by the way, have increased from the times that the time that the audit office has produced the report. But actually, what you probably wouldn't want a target of underperformance. You would want a target of making sure that people have throughout the year line managers have managed their staff appropriately, and we embed a culture of continuous improvement and learning and development. And I think and a couple of changes, or a couple of things that we've done in the, um, in, say, the past year or so, I've got time. Um, so, for example, you know, the permanent secretary group, um, as a group, we, we met and we discussed uh, all of our grade threes. Um, and we, uh, in doing that, we were discussing, you know, development, uh, you know, uh, whether, you know, the moves were needed or whether, uh, you know, what skills people had, um, you know, how we could best use those. And actually, in the Department of Finance, then, we took that back and we actually conducted the same exercise for our Grade 5. So, um, and, you know, that's the work that I think um, Anne has also been embedding uh, as part of the, 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 the development um, work. Thank you. And finally, the... Uh... Yes, go ahead. Sorry, if I, if I could just... If I could, sorry, Jerry, with your permission, come in on that point, um, because it's, it relates to the fact that our people did have did have the tools, but the new guides that we're introducing are actually introducing a talent map as well, and it's one that, that is used in other organisations and used in in, in in the in the GB civil service as well, and that really does start to be able to, to to make the conversations more relevant in terms of looking at the individual, looking at where they are in their career, looking at their aspirations, and then giving a route to what is the best development option for them. And that's work that was commenced at, at, within the, the SES, and we're now rolling out that as a tool that can be of use at all levels within the civil service. 
Okay, thank you. And I know all our members have come in on all our issues here. But finally, recru recruitment time. Uh, the process for recruitment has taken up to 20 weeks in the Northern Ireland Civil Service to appoint. What, why is that and why so long? Yeah. Um, well, there, there was a there is a case study that was um, presented in, in the report, and there are a number of reasons why recruitment, um, number of variables rather, that impact on the time frame for recruitment. So, for example, it can be getting a panel together, availability of a panel. It can be how long it takes somebody to be security checked. It can how long their notice period is. When you there, say a panel, is that an internal panel? Recruitment HR, panel, yes. Well, it depends on the nature of it. So if I understand you do have some 360 HR staff. Would that be correct in the process of a service? Over what, sorry? 360 HR staff alone. Yes, but the panel is made up from people who are the recruiting, so the department who is recruiting will, will be the panel. So it's not HR. HR doesn't comprise the panel. We manage the process, but the panel will be comprised of the employing department. Um, so getting panels together, but in, this, in the particular circumstances that's referred to um, in that, there were um, issues around that the, um, the customer, if you like, who was Nisra in this case, had asked that they, the interview spanned over the summer in order to get the graduate um, people coming out of university and graduates. So the time frame wasn't wasn't quite maybe as, as set out there. Um, and also then there's notice period. But also we we can't we cannot in EHR actually um, put somebody in post unless there is funding and headcount. So in other words, that we have assurance that the post is actually affordable. So until we get that, we won't actually put put the person in post. So sometimes that doesn't always come. So from there the could department. be vacancies in the civil service, which isn't budgeted for. Um, well, there, the, the check that we have is that we have to get the actual sign-off, so it's actual approval that the finance people have signed off in terms of the post, and um, that, that is a check and balance that we have. It certainly seems a bit cumbersome, because it's obviously for, for people who are looking for jobs, and quite talented people as well, to hang around for five months to wait and see if you're successful or not. They're going to be away to other places, surely, where... Not say there's better management, but to take five months to appoint somebody—that that's scary. The, the time frames that we have recently, in terms of what the competitions that we have managed, the large-scale ones for which there was um, fifteen thousand applications for one, nine thousand for another, three thousand around three thousand and around three four thousand for the other, which will have us in March in a supply position of two thousand. We will. We did those in eight weeks. So there are significant, you know, there are significant improvements there. So from the day that we launched the competition, and those competitions involved bespoke testing, assessment centres. You know, out there in the private sector, you probably do that in two to three weeks. Pardon? Out there in the private sector, where they're busting to get the best talent brought forward, they'll be doing that in two to three weeks. I can comment on on the my experience of other organisations. Five weeks seems quite considerable. Well, you know, recruitment is something that is a, is a real investment. I think it makes sense to, to absolutely do it right. It's My not, understanding is you're losing that, that investment to other bodies, other sectors. It's not really. Well, my understanding is that eight weeks is is a, is a good benchmark. I was going. I, mean, I was going to say. I think um, you need you know, to improve that now. 
I think the recent exercises that uh, that Jill is talking about, you know, those uh, they were massive, um, actually, for here. Very, very different scale competitions to what had been done previously, and at grades that actually previously wouldn't have been advertised in that way. And we had a fantastic response. And actually, we have got you know some of the very best people joining the civil service. But I think the, the, the time that it took was actually, I would say, would be very comparable with the time that I would have been familiar with in the Cabinet Office when I was there for those large-scale recruitment exercises. You know, they come, they, they, they sit assessment centres and tests, um, but then there is also an interview process. So all of that actually does take time. And it's important it takes time, I think, that you know, we make sure we are getting the best people. Um, but I think the, the 20 weeks is a very exceptional thing. Um, you do you have to compete, but as well? Pardon? You do have to compete against others as well? Yeah. You just can't okay. sit back and say that's... I wouldn't, dream of, I wouldn't dream of sitting back. I think we yeah. have got to definitely um, be competing. That's, a, that, that's the way it's come across to me, you know. Well, I, we've got to, we know we're competing with the, very, with the very best. Absolutely. And we want to get the very best into the civil service. So we know that's what we're competing with. And I think that the, um, you know, previously we wouldn't have been advertising externally at these grades. That is a huge step forward. And, you know, I think that is going to introduce new talent into the civil service. But the job doesn't just stop when we get them in. We've then got to make sure that they want to stay and that we give them the development and learning and the opportunities to want to stay with us. We want to be the employer of choice. An employer of choice. That's where we want to be. Hopefully they don't read this report. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Thank you, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Muir. Thank you very much, Chair. Um, first of all, I just wanted to echo some of the other comments in terms of appreciation for civil servants and the work that they're Thank doing. You particularly during the pandemic, it's been extremely difficult and it's greatly appreciated. And for you to come here today in the context of everything else is uh, I'm grateful for. Um, just touch upon one issue, which was in relation to temporary promotions that are taking place. I've had people contacting my office concerned at the, the level of temporary promotions within their workplace. And I think um, one assurance I'm sort of looking for is that there's a worry that some people could be in temporary posts who probably don't have the right skill sets or the abilities to be able to manage some of the complex projects and what sort of checks and balances are put in place to ensure that that isn't the case and that people who are in those temporary positions are fully qualified to be able to undertake that? So, um, I mean, a lot will depend on the nature of the role, but I mean, you know, uh, often where you, where, you, where, you are, where you have a temporary promotion, you will compete that temporary promotion. So um, you know that temporary promotion should be offered, should be available to a certain group to apply. So it isn't just normally about uh, you know asking one person. You are competing it, um, but it, it should be short, temporary. relatively yeah, <laughs> temporary. It should be temporary. Um, so you know, um, but I think if you are you know when you're doing that, um, you know you do want to make sure that the job that you are even on a temporary basis. But the job that you are competing for, that you get the right skills into that role, um, even on a temporary basis. I actually don't think that because somebody's in a temporary role that they don't have the skills. Um, that is a critical factor for yeah. and, and And also, um, in the performance management policy and system that we have, the line manager has to say whether or not the person is um, able to undertake a role at a higher level. 
Okay. So there's that check and balance as well. And the performance management process applies to that role of which they're undertaking. Yeah. yeah. So they will yeah. they will say whether or not they believe the person is is capable of moving up to a higher a higher role. Yeah. One other issue that potentially could lead to more temporary positions is the ageing workforce within the civil service. So I'm not young, so I'm not... No, no, well, I'm certainly not either. So there's real concern that there's quite a lot more retirements due in the next number of years, um, and that's a particular concern, particularly around the senior civil service. And what assurance could you give that there's actually action being taken to deal with that? Because that's a, quite a reputational yeah. and uh, organisational yeah. risk. So first of all, I think that um, um, you know we're all uh, we all agree. Um, you know, we need young people in our in our civil service. We need young people round the table. When we are developing policies, when we are implementing practices, you know, we need we need people. You know, young people who are going to challenge us, but also bring other perspectives into the workplace. Um, you know, basically, you know, you sort of, we all need our kids around to uh, tell us what they think. Um, so, um, uh, you know, that is definitely something that we're really focused on. And actually, the uh, external competitions that we've run um, have brought in, um, you know, a younger workforce. Um, having said that, you know, we also need uh, that corporate memory. We need that continuity. And that is really why our uh, succession planning arrangements, which is all part of our skills analysis, our workforce planning, we do need to have good succession plans in place to be able to make sure that when people leave, that we have the people <coughs> that have, are coming up to actually take over from them. And that's a big part of the work that Jill and her team are doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Sue mentioned earlier that you know we did have a moratorium on recruitment for quite some time. How long we, was that for? We also. How long was the oh, sorry, it was it was at least a year, um, or or and then obviously we had. Fit. We had VAIS, um, the voluntary exit scheme, which um, had put 15% um, of the organisation left. Um, and in terms of then, we have an internal promotion board system in terms of so we will not recruit normally externally. So to date, until we launched the recruitment exercise in May 2019 for SOs and DPs, AOs and work coaches, we hadn't externally recruited at that middle management grade. Mm -hmm. So we, we did that and as I said by um, March, the end of this financial year, we'll have 2,000 people um, recruited and that has already started to bring down the age. The other thing that we um, are looking at is trying to expand the apprenticeships um, within the Northern Ireland Civil Service. So we have three apprenticeships at the minute. Uh, you know, we have ICT and we have civil engineering, mechanical engineering, but we've started work on procurement apprenticeships and also um, operational delivery apprentices. So I think you know, if we do that, apprentices will that will bring in. You know, that will attract. We've also in the way that we've advertised. You know. Um, as we've talked about trying to compete with the best, if you like, um, we have absolutely looked at how we advertise and directed it towards young people um, as well in terms of Facebook, social media, radio, all of that kind of thing, trying to make it more attractive. And I suppose the other thing I would say is that, you know, 
I know age was flagged up and it's a very real concern, but there are other areas that we are underrepresented in. So we're underrepresented in terms of disability um, and we're underrepresented in, in other areas. We have had um, a historical imbalance of um, females at the top of the organisation. So there has also been work ongoing, and I, and I know the Audit Office um, ha hasn't you know, really referred to the diversity and inclusion work that we've done, but we've done a lot around trying to remove barriers for those people as well. So age is certainly one area, but it's also another, you know, there are other areas. I may have got the, um, the time frame of the uh, Moratorium on recruitment role. Seems so, a lot longer than a year. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. My, and my head's a bit pickled. So Michelle or Anne might be able to help me. It was before my time anyway. I'm, I'm here three and a half years, so apologies. Is Michelle or Anne, or could you, Michelle, do you know? So I think it coincided with um, the bail scheme in um, 2015. 16 and was lifted um, just at the turn of the year um, in 2016, so it probably ran for about 18 months. Um, if, I think in, in terms of the, the, it, 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 it slightly preceded the VAS scheme because I think one of the issues for us was before we would go to anywhere near a VAS scheme, we, we had to do that moratorium as well um, on recruitment to see if that would have been sufficient for us without having to move into the Yes. So I'd agree with Michelle, but probably maybe in the year in advance of that as well, from memory. Okay. Just one more question, Sheriff, if it's okay. Just around the culture within the civil service. Um, uh, before COVID came along, it was very rigid. You, working from home was really not a yeah. thing that civil service entertained and miraculously occurred within days. Yeah. Uh, and that's been beneficial for friends I know that have found it uh, and a career in the civil service more yeah. uh, more attractive. Um, I've Speaking personally, um, the fact that the civil service took part in Pride two years ago was a positive thing for me. It sent out a culture of a modern, diverse workforce, and I think it's really important. But there's a lot more needs to be done in terms of creating it, as you have said, as an employer of choice. Who's going to drive that culture change? Where is that going to come from? And is there going to be changes in working practices as a result of COVID? Are they going to be made permanent, or are we going to go back to the old ways? So first of all, I would say that we, um, we had work underway before COVID um, to actually recognise that, you know, actually we don't want everybody driving in Belfast every day. Um, we want people to, we want our staff to either be working at home or it, we, 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 have a, we have a programme of work to establish connectivity hubs uh, across, uh, across Northern Ireland. And that work was already underway. And that was about recognising that, you know, People spend a lot of their day in a car, in traffic jams, and actually that is not the thing to do. And if I look at being an employer of choice, um, you know, if I look at young people, you know, who are coming into work, wanting to work, how they work remotely and all of that, it's very important to them. And actually, I don't know many young people that want to come and sit in an office uh, for five days a week. So we had that work underway. COVID has actually accelerated that work, and that is a really good thing. Um, currently, we've got about 90% of our staff working at home, working remotely. I think that figure needs to come down a bit. We need to have a bit more of that blending, that, that, that working, working from home. Um, but that is all work that is actively underway, and we hope very soon to be able to announce the first couple of our regional hubs, where they will be located. And I think what's also important there is that 
Um, we don't just set ourselves up as a civil service in isolation. We are uh, a civil service working alongside you know, local government staff, alongside charities, alongside the private sector, because actually that is how we also will do our business better. By you know, even if it is just coming into a building and you bump into somebody in a lift and you talk about a case that you're all working on, that will all be for the greater good. Um, in terms of culture change and leadership, I think you know the NICS board uh, has a very big part to play in all of this. This is very much where all of my colleagues are. We're all you know, uh, we all agree on this. Um, and actually, you know, we've also got a big programme of work that is underway about, bring, you know, about our IT. Our IT has performed really well in uh, current circumstances and all credit to IT Assist uh, for how they've delivered that. But we do need to move into, you know, into the cloud. We need to move into different ways of working. That work is underway. But it's a huge culture change. Nice. Our staff, I think, overall are very are, are happy with it you know i i mean last week i did a all staff event with over five i'm doing them on a monthly basis with over 500 people so straightforward to do if i was doing that in a pre-covid that would have meant getting a venue that would have meant bringing together 500 people i can now do it uh, on a webex call with everybody um and you know that is fantastic the, the response from our staff is really good but i have to also say to them i really appreciate what they have done because overnight they have changed their way of working and they have adapted really really well so that's that's where we are no, I was just going to say, and we have also, you know, we've worked very closely with our trade union colleagues, and we have um, developed a draft home working policy, um, and and that will be very useful. And also, Anne's team and the health and wellbeing team have put a lot of guidance and support in place for people who have been working at home over the past ten months. In addition, of course, there are some people who can't work from home because of the nature of their jobs, and we have done, you know, the, the departments have done risk assessments for those people to make sure that they can work but absolutely in terms of cultural change I think it has catapulted us and we are able to you know in terms of that blended approach and being much more flexible having the guidance and and the, and the policies in place and we've looked to best practice elsewhere for that and those are, are now being developed just subject to final trade union consultation thank you although I would just make the point that that can only work if there's good management in, in, in place yeah yeah I mean I have to tell you not a civil servant, but a government body. I spoke to very recently about a constituent of mine who hadn't had emails replied to since June or until a few weeks ago. Right. And the reason that person didn't get emails replied to them is because the manager was allowing them to work from home and they didn't have a computer. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, you need to have a computer. I mean, I think, mm. you know, so we have obviously, uh, you know, rolled out laptops uh, and, you know, yeah. All of that. I think I'm simply, also, making the, simply making the point. Yeah, no, no, I get that. And it wasn't a civil servant, but yeah. it was a government body. Yeah. And yeah. my point to the manager that I was speaking to was, I don't blame the person, I blame yeah. you. Yeah. Because you know you're allowing someone to sit at home. Yeah. Uh, around and, and, and do a, a job of work without the tools. Yeah. Um, I'm here now criticising that person because that person hasn't, and the information is presented to me, been replying to my constituents' emails. My constituents very distressed because there haven't been replies to those emails and I then find when I check you haven't given them a computer in um, in, in the department we have a uh, we've, we've we've introduced a keeping in touch app 
um, which is quite basic, but you know, it is actually about everybody on a weekly basis telling us where they are, what they're doing, where they're, where they're working from. Um, and we know through that, so for example, you know, we had probably about three people, three and a half thousand staff in the department, had about three people who couldn't work from home. That was mainly, that was about the nature of their job. Um, they may have been a driver or, uh, you know, doing something, a, a receptionist, you know, front. So we had about three people. But overall, and in areas where we can manage, um, where we can, uh, you know, understand the service that is being given. So if we're in, you know, if you're in a call centre, uh, you know, we have got, we have seen productivity improve in terms of speed at answering calls and dealing with something. So, you know, it's work in progress, um, but I think actually it is a very good piece of work in progress. And we will come back, we will have to, you know, more people will come in whenever that is going to be possible. But we don't, I don't think we'll ever go back to how we worked. And I wouldn't want us to go back to how we worked. Okay, Mr. O'Toole. Thank you very much. Thank you both for coming in and, um, and giving evidence. And I suppose I should say, um, at the start, I, um, I echo everything that's been said about civil servants delivering in practice. Having been a civil servant and now a politician, I'm more than aware of how much civil servants actually have to work and politicians can get by by saying things. Um, so all that being said, um, uh, I, would, there are, I want to ask questions, if I may, more about the kind of structural things that this report has outlined because there are lots of things that individual civil servants, whether they're administrative officers or permanent secretaries, um, didn't create and aren't personally responsible for, but I think the report highlights fairly substantial and concerning structural issues around the Northern Ireland Civil Service, both when compared to, for example, the sort of GB civil service and also just in general. So I suppose I just wanted to start by asking um, whether um, what the impact in general terms has been on the performance of the civil service of the last um, five to six years, beginning with, in a, in a sense, austerity slash VES and then the recruitment freeze, all the way through, which includes the things that have been mentioned, suspension of the institutions, Brexit, RHI, all of those things. What impact has that had on the performance of the civil service? And, uh, and that can include everything from um, capacity to morale. So... Um I think we are a small civil service. Um, you know, 23,000 people is a small civil service. Uh, and I think the issues around, uh, you know, I think I obviously wasn't here at the time, but, you know, I still get correspondence and emails from people around the voluntary exit scheme and a feeling that, um, you know, it, it was done in a way, decisions were taken, not necessarily on... Um, you know where you know whether it was the right, whether you were keeping the right skills, whether you were <laughs> retaining the skill set you needed. Um, a feeling that you know, uh, you know that the decisions were made on cost grounds rather than on that that skills analysis ground. Um, I think then people felt then that they were you know they were doing possibly you know the jobs of two or you know two people, and so that obviously has an effect on morale. Um, I think being without ministers for three years um, put the civil service into a very, uh, very frontline way with, um, you know, criticism, uh, 
I think no matter how great a job you do, people do tend to be more critical. Um, and they're, they're the things that people raise. Um, so I think people felt that, um, uh, you know, they, uh, they would work in very challenging circumstances. Um, and uh, I think all of, those, all of those things have had an effect on civil service. Um, we do an annual, an annual people survey. Um, and actually, the uh, people survey responses um, first of all, the response rate, I suppose, is we're just over 50%. Um, you know, I think we'd like to see a higher response rate for people telling us how they feel, what's important to them. And the engagement score is slightly improved on previous years, but it's nowhere, I think it's not where we want to be. Uh, we would want to see a higher engagement score. Um, and you know, that's really important that we are asking people about how they feel, um, what's important to them in the workplace, how they feel about the leadership around them, how they feel about can they manage their workload. The questions are really good questions and it's a really helpful guide for us about how people are feeling. Just on, on the question of, and, and anyone who, who wants to come in in addition to, to the Permanent Secretary, um, sick, one of the things that comes out in this report is that sickness rates are frankly shockingly yeah. high. Um, why is that, do you think? So I think some of it, um, I think interestingly in these new working arrangements, our sick absence rates are reducing mm -hmm. um, and actually, you know, I've been talking to, uh, you know, as part of the engagement events, I'm doing, talking to some of the team and asking them, you know, about their working day now. People are getting an extra couple of hours of their of personal time in their working day. They're not having to travel and sit in traffic. They're not having to uh, be worried about, you know, if I'm late leaving a meeting, will I get home to do my, to look after the, my caring responsibilities? I think they're all huge things. I think they make a huge difference to people's lives and how they feel. So I do think that the sick absence is, you know, we know people are working, people are working at home. They are being very productive. Um, and I think that is having a really big impact on how they feel and their sickness absence. And so I think that, I hope that that trend will continue. Um, and, you know, it, it, it is just hugely important. But it was, but when this report was done, it was like twice Absolutely. the UK average. Is that, is there a, is there an, exp, what's, 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 what's the local, is there a local explanation? Is it to do with? I, I think, um, um, I mean, it is, it is very high. And I think that there is a high absence rate here Overall, you know, the councils have got mm. a, a higher rate of absence. Um, so, and I think, you know, I don't know, uh, Jill or somebody may be able to talk about what the, uh, what the conditions are, but there is a lot, you, know, you know, mental health, you know, uh, issues, but I, I really think our new way of working is actually going to pay, show us a big difference. Jill, you can probably explain. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing too, um, absolutely, it, it is high, it's high in Northern Ireland, it is something that is common to the public sector in Northern Ireland. Um, the audit office does talk about that it's, um, you know, the care has to be taken in terms mm. of, of comparisons because there are different ways of gathering data and reporting data. Um, Nonetheless, there's a comparison given, um, and 14.9%, obviously, 14.9 uh, days in local government, 129 for us, which is, is not good. 50%, though, of the civil service had no absence at all, um, and 
The two biggest areas um, reasons for absence are cold and flu and also then mental health. And we know that Northern Ireland has a higher rate of, of, of mental health um, issues mm. um, than anywhere. Also, the ageing workforce that we've talked about be um, before. Um, so, you know, we have done a, a really... There's a constant analysis of this. It's something that, you know, requires a lot of work um, all the time. We do, we do manage it. Um, the recent audit office report um, talks about the sort of success factors, if you like, in terms of managing it, which is around looking at a case management um, approach and also early intervention and line managers taking more responsibility for absence so that they can have that you know early intervention those are all things that either um, are underway or just about to be rolled out um, we also have done a considerable amount of work on mental on mental health um, we have an employee counseling service 24 hours seven days a week um, you can refer to that or a line manager can, can intervene in that. We have um, welfare officers. We have also put in place recently or over the past couple of years, we put in place a mediation service. So in terms of work-related stress or work-related issues, we try to intervene as soon as possible in those issues. Um, Sue's right, we have had a very welcome reduction in absence over the over the past 10 months um, because, of, you know, it, given the current um, COVID situation, there's, we need to really deep dive into that to see why that is. Obviously, people aren't in work as much. They're not on public transports. They're not getting the colds and flus, but also the working from home will help, and we really want to make sure um, that we, um, you know, Take our lessons learnt from that and, and you, keep it going. Thank you. And in terms of the in terms of the analysis you've already done, and I think this came out in, in, in conversations with some of colleagues in the NIAO, specifically, have there been linkages between stress in the civil service and people feeling that the institutions they work for are, uh, in a sense, under attack or are being or are threatened, jeopardised? Generally, the acute political stress this place has seen in the last three to four years via Brexit, but also via suspension of the institutions, has that directly had an impact on people's stress levels and anxiety, and therefore absence? Well, just over, just you know, you know, as I said, mental health, um, const mental health issues do constitute uh, just over thirty percent. I think I, I can get the exact figure. I've got them here. Yes, about a third of the days lost is work-related yeah. stress. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where you have to, we have to manage that in terms of that's what I've talked about. We've, we've implemented a mediation service and the employee counselling service, and we've looked to roll things out and line, manage, um, line managers taking more responsibility. But there's not, we don't gather evidence around that it's specifically related to maybe civil servants feeling under attack or worried about mm. their organisations. But obviously, there are the financial constraints that we're working in. Yeah. Um, we, you know, all the things that we've talked about. I mean, my own organisation um, only started in April 2017. When we started, we started with 16% less staff than there were previously. And then we, you know, have then within that, we have had EU exit. So a huge amount of work around that. And then more recently, COVID. So, you know, there have been, when we talk about, you know, continuing to deliver business as usual with less resources, I would say the business as usual hasn't even been usual. 
you know, it's, it's been incredibly difficult, I have to say. I think one of the things that will make a big difference is the work that you have underway to, uh, you know, um, for this responsibility to be with line managers to manage. So I think um, at the moment, you know, a lot of this is handled you know, elsewhere. Whereas actually, if you're a line manager and somebody is, uh, you know, either not coming in or they are not performing in the way that you would want, I think if you are responsible for having that conversation, that allows you to have early engagement to actually understand what is going on. I just want to ask if I may a question about. Um we talked earlier on about the age profile of the civil service, and I say this is not a, either an ageist statement or I don't qualify as young anymore, so I don't have to declare an interest. But the Northern Ireland Civil Service is, is it a fair statement to say that the, judge, the corporate judgment is the Northern Ireland Civil Service is too old? No, its no. age profile is, is, oh, is, is too old. From a, not, that, not that there's anything wrong with careful. the age, but that... Uh, well, I, I think we, we would definitely accept that we need younger people in the service um, uh, alongside us. <laughs> I think the answer is that do we represent, does the civil service represent the economically active you know, population and we don't. No. And we're also underrepresented in other areas as well. Do, do you, th and I just want to hopefully be my last point and I'll turn it over to someone else to give that them in. Um, so the Northern Ireland specific fast track scheme ended in 2014. That's being, I think, reintroduced. Yeah. Do you? Is there a? Is it a concern that the Northern Ireland Civil Service is not yet an attractive enough employ, an attractive enough um, destination for young, sort of high achieving graduates? Well, I think I, I do think the civil service is. Uh, you know, we know from our recent. Uh, competitions that we had lots of uh, lots of interest from younger people, um, graduates and non-graduates, mm -hmm. uh, very much uh, a, a mix. Um, I think part of the problem is we haven't been recruiting um, in the in the numbers and the level at which we are currently recruiting. And I think that's all really good. Um, uh, but you know we need to keep them. I think the apprenticeship program rolling out a uh, a wide scale. Apprenticeship programme is going to be hugely, uh, you know, absolutely really important. We know from the apprenticeship schemes that we currently have, we are we have really good, high calibre people who apply and who come in and who stay with us, and that's what we want to have. So I don't, I don't, I don't think I accept that younger people and the graduates are going elsewhere because actually they think we're not an attractive employer, um, and actually, you know. If we, you know, there's work we need to do around uh, making it more accessible to be able to go in and out and second them, not just from other civil services, but also with the private sector, with the charitable sector. All of those things will be really good. Um, but you know, I think that mainly because we haven't been recruiting at the scale and the level that we now currently that we have now started. You would, this is my final question, I promise. You wouldn't would you accept the proposition and tell me no, but if it's not, tell me if it's unfair. Honestly, I'm just I'm that I will. <laughs> I know you will. <laughs> <laughs> that if you are a that that and it goes back to some of the issues around profile and perhaps, you know, some of the bashing that these institutions have taken, frankly that if you are, for example, a graduate who's interested in public service, public administration from Queen's University Belfast, 
the no, the going into a whether it's fast track or just a graduate job with the Northern Ireland Civil Service will be in relative terms less attractive than it would be for an equivalent graduate in London or Dublin. Well, um, <laughs> and, I, and I say that quite interesting. And, you know, indeed, um, but you, the, the, or any other city it doesn't have to be London. It could be a and a another uh, city in yeah. these islands. Um, I mean, look, I think in you know we need to have a, a fast track scheme that is firmly established and that is uh, part of our normal way of recruitment that we are doing an annual intake. If you look at what happens in you know, the civil service that we've come from, um, you know, oversubscribed, um, you know, number one choice for graduates, mm. um, that is where we want to be. Um, but certainly I think that the, uh, you know, the work that has started and is being done um, will actually get people, get people in. It's also important when people come in that we support them. And so actually if people are coming into work, you know, my job as a senior leader is to stand up and actually you know, stand in front of people and take some of that criticism. That's for me. I wouldn't expect young graduates to come in and feel that that's for them to take. So we've got to give the right conditions, and I do believe that we are all committed to doing that. Thank you. Hey, Mr. Boylan. Thank you, Chair. You're very welcome. Uh, and I, I concur with some of the remarks on this. Do the staff and the work they're producing at this time <coughs> very challenging times? But so I want, I want to bring it back to. I want to try and simplify it because I'm going to ask it in the context of a workforce model. So, a workforce model. The department has a function. So. As part of that function, to deliver that function, you need the headcount, the skill set, the financial plan. Because I was slightly <laughs> concerned when Jill said the recruitment, when she was answering about recruitment, we may not have the money to pay the person. Yep. So let's, let's take it back to a workforce model before yep. getting into some report. Are you saying you didn't, when you went in your first day brief, I like your first day oh, brief. You love okay. my first day brief. <laughs> when we didn't do the first day brief, did you take an overall analysis? Of the department, see what you needed. Where was the gaps starting there? Because that should echo right across the whole of the civil service. Because, and I appreciate we lost 15%. Yeah. The VES. I appreciate Mr. O'Toole's questions about the youth, but we lost experience and capacity yeah. as well. I think you have to get the balance. So back to the workforce model. I just want your your idea. So um, when I, I think first of all, I think the Department of Finance is, uh, and I probably would say this is um, very different to other departments um, because um, within the Department of Finance we have um, a number of very discrete areas that actually, some of them could be anywhere. The statistical Northern Ireland Statistical Research Agency is an agency of the Department of Finance. It could be somewhere else. Um, and I think all of the professions that we have um, you know, uh, also make sometimes it's difficult for people in the Department of Finance sometimes to, you know, to have that one common thread that a lot of departments, other departments might have. Um, but what I did was, uh, you know, there wasn't anything in my first day briefing about the, uh, the, work, the workforce plan uh, for the department um, or uh, you know, anything like that. But what I did was I took time over the next few months to understand the work of the various areas um, and the skills that they uh, that they required, some of their gaps, and have used that work to, uh, I suppose, to help develop what I feel the department needs. Um, Jill uh, will be able to talk about, you know, 
the workforce planning uh, as a whole. But that's, that's how I've gone about understanding what I need in the department. I think the point that we were making earlier about making sure we can afford the job um, that is been recruited to, it comes back to, I think, when I saw my first, you know, when I saw the responses to the workforce plan in the department, um, you know, which the individual units had put in their, their, their numbers and their requirements, uh, you know, we wouldn't have been able to afford that. So, you know, there needs to be that, uh, you know, that discussion then that takes place about, you know, what that area needs. Um, what we can afford, but more importantly, what that area needs to deliver the priorities and to have a discussion as well around priorities and uh, objectives. No, and, and he asked it in that respect because you've got to deliver the function yeah. first and foremost. Yeah. Now, the workforce plan is slightly different because yeah. strategically you, you may have to move in the different. Yeah. Now, I know your department is separate, but I'm, I'm saying in general yeah. for this report because they're more specific in what to deliver. Yeah. And that's the way it, that's the way to me, that's the way it, yeah. it's reading across and, yeah. and I appreciate it. Um I just want to go back to see the recruitment Jill in terms of the time frames in terms of recruiting people. And I think the when you're asking the question about when the what do you call it, recruitment all was frozen between yeah. twenty what, fourteen and sixteen period of time. Um See, in terms of recruitment timeframes, compared to any other jurisdiction, how does that compare up? Or well, the eight the eight weeks does does compare. I mean, that is a benchmarkable figure. It is comparable to to other jurisdictions. It's also you've got to bear in mind whether or not it's a large scale recruitment, um, or or not. And um, you know, <coughs> said for for the AO competition that we had, we had fifteen thousand. Applicants for the EO2, we had uh, our work coaches, we had 9,617. For SO, we had 4,334. And for DP, we had 3,072. So, you know, for, from, the, from the minute that launched until the, the, day, the day that the letters went out saying you have been successful, that was eight weeks. And you know we did we, we did um, look at what other organisations do, and that is that is comparable. Um, that's not to say that there are individual areas where we need to make improvement. We definitely do. Um, there are you, you know um, there are areas whereby we definitely need to reduce the time frame. But I was, I was just making the point that there are a number of variables within that in terms of. No, no, and appreciate it, and, and what's still. Reading through the report, and what I'm trying to get to is, we went from 12 departments down to nine. We took three workings of those departments, split them between local authority and mostly across the departments. So at some point, someone should have been looking, besides the workforce plan, should have been looking at the model to deliver all of that. Yeah. And I'm just asking where, because this, this report is clearly exposed, where yeah. the gaps are. Mm -hmm. But surely with time to look at it, or somebody, I'm not saying, I know some of you have only arrived into it. But it should have been sitting maybe in the first day, or questions should have been asked yeah, yeah. as to actual model to deliver for the civil service. Well, I mean, as I said, we we Next HR was established in 2017, so I think before that there was no overall, but every no overall plan, but every department, you know, has responsibility and does manage its workforce within its within its affordability and needs to make sure that it has its own skills. Um, but then in January. We set about looking at, in January 2018, we started to look at um, a, a whole workforce model, if you like, and a plan. And we developed a template, put that out to the departments and asked them 
to make sure that they are sort of articulating and setting out exactly what it is. I suppose I would call it an establishment or a complement. You know, so what is it that they need within their departments to deliver? Very quickly, so that's where that sort of template, that consistent template went out. But very quickly, we got into the first round of EU exit planning. Um, and we were then into, um, in, into November. We really had to prioritise posts for EU exit. Um, so we had to sort of switch, if you like, not completely, but we had tried to get this sort of overall workforce plan template done, but we had to then swift, swiftly move into aligning resources into EU exit planning. We then got into a whole audit um, with supply colleagues around um, deal and no deal scenario planning, so how many additional um, posts would we need, how many extra skills, what different skills would we need and that then fed into a bid for money. So if you like, that was a sort of a very, very um, <coughs> quick but very important workforce planning. So we sort of had to, had to move into that mode. That then there was a full audit at, uh, or full analysis at every level, at every grade in the organisation in terms of what was needed. Every department fed into that um, and in terms of what was affordable and then that in March um, 2019 was agreed where we would then focus in terms of recruitment um, and then in May that's when we launched our external recruitment plans and then more recently we have act we have worked with the departments in terms of what do you need given the current COVID context and also um, EU exit planning so every department has given an analysis of what they need and what they can afford and we have developed a um, six to nine month recruitment plan and Michelle um, has, led that, has led that work around being very clear where are we going to recruit, what skills or what posts do we need and um, where are the priorities and get that in place over the next six to nine months. So we've had the sort of EU exit and then we've had the COVID and EU exit, and we've had two. No, and, and, and I appreciate that. that. I, I appreciate that, Minister. But but the point of the report is it's identifiable. I know these things are coming along this year and all of that. Um, I just think from the start, with a chance in 2015 to look at it. And, and but but just two final points. The and I don't want to go down the age issue, but there's a certain percentage of the staff will be a certain age at a certain time, yeah. and they'll be moving out. And, over the next say ten years, your plans to address that. Now, obviously, you said about recruitment, but your your plans because I seen the time we transferred planning to a local authority a number of years ago. We're concerned about the skill set, the capacity to deliver. So, um, just in terms of that, and also just a wee bit about the um, <coughs> people's strategy and what work you want to take into try and deal with it or deliver it. Okay. I just make the point in football. You know, is the old adage. If you if you're if you're uh, good enough, you're old enough. What? in the civil service. He just. Okay. No, 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 no. I'm just. I'm only yeah. going to report that. I didn't mention the age. So just, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Go so ahead. I, I mean, I, I'll cover um, the people strategy, and, and, and yeah. then um, Sue so can come in. But. Um, so really, I suppose, as I've said, that when we, when NextHR was established, um, we, we started off with 16% um, less, but really what it did was bring 
all the departmental HR teams together, um, the um, CAL team together and the corporate HR together. Um, so we really had to, if you like, deliver business as usual to all the departments uh, and also then look to how we would respond to modernising and transforming um, the HR service and, and many areas of policy. Um, one of the main things that we looked at in determining the people strategy was the OECD report, but also the emerging um, issues at the time from the RHI inquiry and also from staff uh, feedback. So, um, and as the audit office um, has said, you know, a lot of the issues that are in our people strategy are those issues that um, have been identified um, in this report. So. Basically, we went about in terms of a, a lot of um, shorter-term priorities, including things like the move of staff to Ballykelly. We implemented mandatory handover arrangements, and that was actually part of the issue that was flagged up by RHI. We developed um, and implemented a whole host of leadership development programmes. We implemented mentoring and coaching. We improved our vacancy management and sickness absence approaches, obviously more to do in that regard. We fundamentally improved the management information for departments. Um, we developed um, civil service apprenticeship guidelines. We introduced a mediation service. We had um, quite a lot of litigation. Um, you'll be aware of the holiday um, case, so we, we managed that and a range of evidence-based diversity and inclusion interventions. We have also at the same time scoped um, and researched I suppose what I would call the real game changer projects and they are two projects around, one is around this, the issue of employee relations and rolling that out to being much more line managers doing those at the minute. My HR team will take a lot of actions that in many other organisations would be conducted by line managers but that requires an awful lot of work with trade unions and, and I suppose a cultural and significant change in how we do things. And then in addition to that, obviously get back on track in terms of the overall workforce plan and model um, and also the fundamental review of recruitment. Um, so to me, those, those if you like, are, are the real issues that need to be taken forward. I think they can't be done and, and the audit office recognises this. They can't be done as business as usual. They need those big transformative issues, need focus and they need resource. And because of the context that we've been operating in for the past while, we've had we've made a lot of improvements through the people strategy, but we do have a lot more to do. Um, in terms of succession planning, it's hugely important, and um, I think this is something that we have got to get better at in the NICS. Um, so, you know, what I will do with my with with my direct reports is, uh, you know, be very aware of, you know, if somebody is retiring or if they're planning to move or whatever. You know, having those discussions and thinking about our pipeline for for their succession. And this is something that needs to go on throughout the whole of the organisation. I think an area, um, you know, alongside succession planning is external recruitment. Um, we advertise the majority, I think, of our senior civil service positions externally, but we get very few successful external candidates. So we need to look at why that is. And actually, you know, whether it is the process or whether it is 
you know, perhaps coming back to the point, are we an attractive, an attractive enough, seen as an attractive enough employer? Um, and, you know, we are doing a lot more, uh, you know, use our networks, use outreach to actually explain what the, what the NICS is doing. There are some really fantastic jobs in the NICS. So we need to do more to probably explain all of that. But succession planning is hugely important. You know, people, there'll always be the time when people go and you haven't planned for it. But that shouldn't be really where we are most of the time. And I think, you know, discussing, you know, and the work that we talked about earlier, discussing uh, where, you know, discussing our people and their skills, understanding their skills and capability, understanding uh, what they would like to do, what their ambitions are and what our ambitions are for them and then where we can help them develop. That is very much uh, work in progress. We need, to, we need to get a lot better at it and it needs to be part and parcel of our everyday look at our workforce. I'm, I'm going to certainly learn from the last experience, the COVID experience, yep. to recognise the work that is being done yep. clearly yep. as well. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Thank you, thank Chair. You. Okay, thank you. Mr McHugh. Well, Walter Road, Rig, Trinola Shaharish, you're very welcome here this afternoon again. Uh, <laughs> Many of the issues that uh, have been covered, but I'd also just like to note too that uh, there's no question at all about uh, the workload that the civil service has actually coped with at the present time and uh, of uh, its efforts in order to deliver to meet the needs of the people of this community. And for that, we're all very grateful in every respect. Um, just going back again on the, the whole issue uh, about sick leave and the likes of it, and talking from my own personal experience, someone who had 30 years and three days in the sick. And probably like most people in, the, in this room, um, uh, we've been sufficiently well enough motivated to get up and go to our work. And that it's all too easy at times maybe to um, uh, look for an easy answer to why it is that uh, sick leave is of the extent it is present. And I just wondered, in the case of the civil service, do you have any indication maybe of what sick leave was like uh, prior to the reorganisation of the civil service in itself? Was I it can honestly say I have no idea. Um, I don't know whether um, Michelle might know. Michelle might know, um, but certainly at, a few years ago it was higher. Um, but last year I think it was 12.1 and this year it's 12.9. But Michelle will, will know the, the detail, hopefully. Maybe not. I'm actually thinking prior to the reorganisation, prior to the reduction from 12. In the last five or six years, but it has plateaued over the last three years, um, and, and there has been really not any marked difference that you could link back to restructuring from twelve to nine departments or bears. There isn't any marked increase or decrease um, in in the level of sickness absence, um, and, and we traditionally run with a fairly level. Um, incidents of long-term sick, um, and whilst fairly level incidents of long-term sick in this level, it also has what you call you know, from month to month. Whilst whilst last month somebody had been off for the full month tends to come back this month, but but invariably is replaced by somebody else who has been off for the full months. So we tend to run our long-term sick absence um, at around two and a half percent. There hasn't been any material. Um, decreases or increases, but nonetheless, as, as was referred to earlier, um, Northern Ireland in general and the public sector does have higher um, numbers of days lost 
Um, and it is interesting to note um, where we are in the current um, COVID-19 pandemic, where in, in the period April to October this year, when you compare it to last year, the number of working days lost to the sick is down by 31%. Um, and that actually is 48,000 extra days that people are at work. Uh, just that I wonder that having reduced, we'll say, from the 12 to the 9 departments uh, and the number of staff that was available without an increase in resources, whether or not that has had an adverse impact as well too on people's health. But it's welcome news, uh, even the statement that has been made in relation to um, the way that the workforce now has been dispersed to the outer regions of the state. And especially for someone who lives in a rural community far from Belfast, uh, I welcome that as well too. Um, but again, it actually leads me on then to the other issue, uh, that of the uh, employment of um, uh, agency staff. Um, and it can be seen very, very much like as a case that whilst the early rate may be higher for agency staff and the likes of it, thus giving you a big agency bill. Uh, at the end of the year, it probably still is cheaper than having offered the same people full-time jobs or full-time posts. Uh, and I wonder, do you have any indication uh, in that respect of how many uh, people who are employed as agency staff have ever applied for full-time posts within the civil service and maybe didn't get them, or who are currently doing a job, we'll say, at the present time, that they could uh, be made up into full-time posts in the election? So definitely, um, you know, in the recent competitions that um, have, been, um, uh, have been run, many of our agency staff have applied for permanent positions. Um, you know, significant, uh, a relatively significant number would have been successful, I think, in the AO competition. Um, uh, but definitely, you know, we, uh, our agency staff, many of them are performing really good jobs and doing them really, really well. And I think they are people that we are want to attract permanently. Um, of course, it's absolutely right that we are running external competitions and that they are competing for those roles, which they are doing. Um, but I mean, Jill may have some other figures, but you know, they are. Um, you are right that they uh, they don't cost. It's not so much the issue of cost. Um, actually, the cost is not uh, greatly different whether you're employing people on permanent basis or the agency cost. What is important is that our staff, you know, people who we employ, I think, um, should have a permanent contract where that is possible. As I said, we will always want some agency staff, but overall, we want to be a good employer, and being a good employer means making our people having permanent contracts for our people and giving them a career path. You know, these are people who are doing really good work and we want them to have a career path. And I think it's that same career path and then to the likes of the apprenticeship scheme yeah. and so on that ensures that the employee are happy at work yeah. and that they see that opportunity and that they are that yeah. encourage them uh, maybe to have far less sick days of the likes of it because sick days in itself yeah. it, it sort of nearly implies a type of malaise yeah. Uh, within the structure, yeah. within the system, or whatever else yeah. it might be. I think some of the work um, that uh, one of Jill's teams, headed by a guy called Michael Cook, I think some of the work that they're doing to, um, you know, I do think as a line manager, you know, if one of my team are off ill or whatever, that's my responsibility to keep in touch with them, to phone them up, 
or to make contact with them and understand, you know, what the issues are, you know, if they're, you know, uh, ill, you know, ask them how they are, uh, hope they'll be better soon, keeping in regular touch. Um, and I think that is the same throughout the organisation. That's the work, that is a really important piece of work that HR are doing to actually, currently that is, uh, you know, a lot of that is outsourced. Um, and so currently the big piece of work to bring that back into responsibility of line managers, I think that will make a huge difference. And I think it's also, you know, very important then that we support line managers in that and that we do provide um, our welfare service, our occupational health service, um, our counselling service, our mediation services. So all of those things, you know, come together. There isn't a panacea to this. There's an absolute, um, you know, lots of reasons <coughs> that contribute and so do you have any indication just of the figures that uh, Sue had uh, alluded in to? In terms of, I don't have, I, I just, I know that, as I said, that in terms of the applicant rates um, and then in terms of how many people we have at um, in supply, but I don't have the actual figures in terms of how many were agency workers, um, but we can get that to you. We're currently working to place the top 500 um, of the agency workers supply and I can confirm that 17% um, of those are agency workers currently working in, a, in an admin officer post in the civil service. That's about 81 staff. So 16% have reached the top 500 out of the 1700 supply that we've got. Thank you. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you. Uh, Mr. Beggs. <coughs> Again, um, I, I too would recognise that, that the civil services, like every employer, under stress. Sorry, sorry excuse me. C can I ask those? Sorry. Resource supply, and I think it's important to, to recognise that out of the the three hundred recruitment agency workers that we have at the minute, um, over a thousand of them are working on that DWP um, benefit processing work. Um, but in its entirety, there's about 26% of those are, are filling um, permanent um, posts with the remainder um, in what would be temporary fixed term type arrangements where we wouldn't have guaranteed baseline funding for, or be dealing with picks and troughs and the likes of our social security benefit caseload and so on. I mean, 73% in overall terms of the recruitment agency workers are in the department. So just, and therefore, as are not dealing with peaks and troughs and workload. Just, just before um, uh, I bring Mr. Beggs back in, can I just ask, in terms of the staff that are employed, many of them temporary, in terms of the DWP contracts, why are they are those contracts year on year? Or why are they, why are they so why are there so many of them uh, agency staff? Um, it's the nature of um, the employment. You know, they're not. Uh, they are performing a task for DWP. Um, I suppose you know we don't necessarily know year year to year how many of them we will need. If the NICS was to take on all of those all of those people, I think, um, and actually make them permanent. I'm, I'm actually just checking here with Jill. This yeah. is right. That if we were to take them, we would be then taking on that I suppose you know that responsibility yeah. that, that that demand and then if DWP decide in a year or two's time they want to commission that service elsewhere or deal with it differently um, you know we may have more people than we would need so okay. uh, it is but you know 
it's working very well um, mm. with the DWP. So, um, you know, that is something that we will obviously look at, but that's how that works. And of course, it's funded as well differently. So, um, yeah, okay. Okay, thanks, Mr. Banks. Just to pick up that last point, first of all, um, <clears throat> you say it's working very well, but if you have to turn over your staff every two years, even though you still need that skill and that staff, that's not working the optimum uh, situation. So, what security do you have? Do you have one year advanced knowledge that you will need 300 people, 400 people? Can you give fixed term contracts to give an increased degree of security to those who are working for you and perhaps limit the, the degree yeah. of turnover? Yeah. I don't know an awful lot about the DFC um, contracts. I don't know whether Jill. So I know I know that DFC does have, if where there is um, some kind of a timeline round, where they do have situations where there is a timeline, they will um, they will employ people on a fixed term contract. So I think it's a mix of, well, I, I, it's a mix of permanent staff, <coughs> a mix of fixed term contract and some agency staff and then they in terms of the DWP work they will have they have a service level agreement with DWP and that and that's my understanding of how it works. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I would also just uh, say for the record that I recognise civil servants like every other employer are working on incredibly difficult times with COVID, EU exit on predictability of what's happening and on top of that you've had uh, uh, absence of political direction. Um, so I, I would recognise that, which, which may have contributed. Uh, however, <laughs> however, uh, <laughs> surely, surely, if you are, surely, if you are um, continually increasing overtime rates and increasing stress on staff, there is a recognition that when there is high levels of vacancies, that you need to actually recruit people. Yeah. Did you not have? Did, did, did no one spot that? Well, we did spot that, and 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 that's why we have um, got to where we are, which was um, in the in the first instance, we have realigned a lot of people internally towards the um, EU exit posts. So therefore, and then fill, tried to backfill from that. So we tried to do that as quickly as we possibly could, and we worked very closely with the trade unions around agreeing flexible arrangements and trying to loan from department to department. I suppose really after a period of time there was a lot of effectively moving the deck chairs and then we realised we absolutely had to go out and externally recruit um, and that's then the programme. So we have recruited at SO and DP level as I said. That's the first time we have ever recruited externally for those posts. We have always, as I said, had that internal promotion board. It was not, I have to say, met. Um, with a, you know, it wasn't particularly welcome by some quarters, but we really felt that it it was it was necessary given the context that we were operating in. Um, and then, as I said, we have more planned. We've got the AO competition already underway, or, or you know, completed, and we have the work coaches, 350 work coaches coming in in January or in the new year, and we have more planned. We now need to move to EO one and two and we need to speak to the trade unions about how we would do that. We fill all SCS posts largely in terms of individual competitions and we um, fill professional and technical posts through individual competitions. So it's the large scale um, areas I think is where we've really had to up our game and that is well underway and as I said by the new by the end of the financial year we should have two thousand people in post. 
and in terms of managing large scale, um, you have the HR Connect system. I'd like to ask some questions, Ryan. It's, it's now contracts now were 15 years old, uh, due for replacement, but obviously that I take it there'll be an extension because you, you haven't got the contract <coughs> out of the way. Um, now you seem to be saying you're satisfied with it, but when I look at this audit office report, I'm looking at uh, Fig 11, and Eight of the nine departments indicate either disagree or strongly disagree that the time taken to place successful internal, external candidates in the post is satisfactory. So it's great. There's great dissatisfaction with the system. Equally, the time taken to recruit and place successful internal candidates in the post is satisfactory. Eight out of the nine uh, disagree or strongly disagree, and one doesn't know. So actually, nobody agrees. So would you recognise that the departments themselves are not satisfied with the process? Yes, I, I would recognise that and, and, and you know, obviously that is the, the anecdotal, if you like, feedback. Um, HR Connect isn't actually under the responsibility, it's actually managed by ESS, Enterprise Shared Services, um, so it's a, it's a contracted out service. I do know how... And who's I, responsible for them? So I'm responsible for them. Um, and uh, I suppose I would say, first of all, I think that you know HR Connect are providing a service uh, which we uh, we set out what we want them to do. You know, they um, they they it's you know they're providing a service at our request. We put in place uh, arrangements that we ask them to deliver on, and it's not clear to me from that table that you're reading out whether really people are unhappy with the HR Connect service itself or whether they're unhappy with the time it's taken to get somebody into a job, which I think is not what you can put at the uh, all entirely at the feet of HR Connect. No, no, absolutely. And that's just what I was going to say yeah. in terms of, you know, they it's a contracted out service and that contract is closely monitored. And I know that they have 60, um, I think it's around 60 performance indicators and so I suppose objectively what I would say is that, that those are the measures that are very tightly measured in terms of the performance indicators by ESS and, and the contract management team. And they are regularly met or exceeded. So they have you know, performance indicators around how long it takes them to you know, uh, get a panel, get letters out, all of that kind of thing. I think probably what um, the feedback in terms of the response was really around the whole end-to-end um, -end process, if you like, which is the, the day and hour that somebody in a department wants to fill a post and until the person, if you like, walks through the door. And that's where you have a number of variables that come into it. So are you saying, are they criticising your process as well as HR Connect, connect them? Well, I think, I think it is the whole end-to-end -end process, which is delivered by, by a number of, of people. I mean, departments have a role to play in it as well. And so so for, it's the whole system, yeah. if you like. Yeah. Who's I, responsible for the system? Ultimately, me, um, I suppose, you know, with the HR, with HR Connect. But I think also, you know, when you look at the, um, the time taken to get somebody in a job, you know, I think, as Jill has said earlier, there is security checking, there is the reference checking. There's a whole load of things here. And I think that just, you know, just uh, being fair, I suppose, to HR Connect, they are delivering a service that was set, many, you know, a number of years ago. 
um, uh, and that's what they're delivering. Um, and you know, that's part of the work we're doing for the new H, for the replacement to HR Connect, which is that uh, transformation that we want to see um, across across the service. I, I see in the report that it took approximately ten months to uh, appoint and recruit an assistant statistician. Now, in less than 10 months, a new vaccine has been developed from scratch by lots of parallel processes and looking very carefully at, at all the connections and how time can be reduced. Would you accept that such an extended period of time could result in people not even turning up for interview because yeah. they've got a new job, the best candidates going elsewhere, yeah. um, and indeed uh, resulting in, in a, a less efficient service yeah. than what you would want? So I think. That is a really exceptional case. Um, that is not the norm. That is a really exceptional case, and I'm assuming that's the case that you were talking about earlier. Um, but you know, I completely accept that at 10 months, people who we are trying to attract from externally, they in a, in, a, in an area of high demand, I think, with the skills that we were looking to recruit, um, they will have decided to go elsewhere or they will you know they will not be interested in our job so that is not something but that is very exceptional um, and uh, but it's not something that you know any of us would accept did your performance indicators flash this one up so the performance indicators that that I was referring to were for the HR connect process in terms of this um, as I said there were I, th I don't think it is the norm um, I understand that it was totally unacceptable in many ways, but my understanding is that the time frame for that was that it was indicated that the department wanted, the business area wanted to fill the post. That was in March. April took, uh, April there was testing, and then at the request of the department, um, we ran interviews over two months, which we wouldn't normally do because they wanted to catch various um, graduates, etc., and other people, um, and then we were ready to go in August, and there was a hold-up on uh, paperwork from the department around checks and balances around funding and headcount. So it's not necessarily I'm saying that they couldn't afford it. I'm just saying we didn't get the paperwork. So. I don't honestly think that that is the norm, but it's certainly not acceptable. And, and, I, and I think what I would say as well is that, you know, if the area of work wants to attract graduates, quite rightly, um, you would be thinking in advance before you launch your competition, really, about when is the best time to advertise, when is the best time to do that recruitment, so that you capture those people. Um, and I think that that's just, it sounds as though there's a whole range of issues there that actually make that very exceptional. I mean, certainly where we want to get to is, is, is you know, for everything is to, is to have it in terms of um, much slicker, much, you know, better time frame. And as I said, the large-scale competitions that we have planned <coughs> have, have been eight weeks. Earlier you were saying, that, that, you know, delays weren't all to do with HR directive, your internal processes. Can you explain some of the internal processes that cause undue delays? Well, as I said, it's, it's, it's the sort of the whole end-to-end -end piece, which is that a department, for example, if it's a new post, um, if it's a new post, you would need to consult with the trade unions. That takes time. <coughs> if, you, if it's a new post that needs to be job evaluated, that's another step, if you like. Um, then you would need to agree the method to fill. You need to look at the job description. <coughs> you have to pull together a candidate information booklet. You have to agree a panel. 
um, the panel has to agree its dates. There's three people on a panel. The panel has to be balanced. You then have to agree um, if you want any testing or anything like that. So there are a whole host of things. Then when you get to it, the, the individual, there may be security clearance and the individual may have notice period. So the whole thing, you know, can can be quite factored. Can you see methods of improving on it? Um, I think there, there definitely are. There is there's definitely room for approval or improvement, and we have done some work what, on that. What would you do to improve it? Um, I think that there's probably some duplication between ourselves and HR Connect that could be looked at and, and approved. Um, I also think that we may be able to reduce some time frames around, say, for example, job evaluation. We have changed that. We have done a much sort of lighter touch. Um, um, so, you know, there are. I also think that it goes back to the earlier points around workforce planning. So, if we can get on track with our workforce plans, and then we have associated recruitment plans, if we get into supply position, that is going to help us dramatically. Yeah. Turning to our aspect of recruitment, which is, is getting the right skills. And uh, again, uh, in the report figure 13, um, there's a survey on the current process of recruiting, promoting to grades for uh, civil service competitions. Does it work well? And the majority of departments say it, say it doesn't. They disagree with that statement. And then, the, but there's probably the most interesting question: with skills gaps, would be better addressed if the civil service competitions targets candidates with specific experiences and skills, and seven agree, one disagrees, and one doesn't know. Now, uh, that's a very strong pointer that there's uh, a lack of emphasis on skills and experiences. And very interestingly, out of the RHI report, there has been some relevant um, comments uh, about that. I draw you to paragraph uh, 4.7 and 4.25, where uh, there's a recommendation there from the RHI report uh, that the recruitment must involve upfront assessment of the skills that are required to fulfil the specific role in question, rather than matching a person <coughs> to a role according to an individual's grade or level of pay. And then in uh, 4.25, um, there's a particular reference to the need to establish a project management profession. There's been a number of areas where we have been investigating audit office reports where the absence of specific skills in project management was uh, quite apparent uh, and, and turnover of, of staff. So my question is, how does HR uh, connect, log the skills and experiences of someone who has project management? Does it do it satisfactorily at present? Um, no, it, 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 and it's not HR Connect's fault, um, if you like. Um, it is that we have not got a skills database, if you like. So there is a facility on the HR Connect system that people can 
put their own skills in, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you it's know, yeah, it's but it's, I mean, it's up to the individual to do it. In terms of skills, however, and the whole project management issue, um, and then how we recruit as well, and, and I'm sure Anne can come in on this, but, you know, certainly in terms of RHI, commercial skills and contract management was flagged up, and there has been um, work on that in terms of developing those skills. So even though we don't have a full skills audit um, and plan across the whole of the civil service. That's not to say that we haven't done work on skills, and in fact, we have focused in very much around the RHI issues. So commercial skills and contract management development programmes have been done, and we have uh, we have looked, and actually they have been accredited. Um, we have looked at um, the economist's role as well. Um, and so, you know, there has been a lot of work done around those skills, and Anne can pick up on that in a minute if you're content. But also, we have um, looked at the first point that you made about RHI and in terms of recruitment and having those skills up front. Every SCS post and every, well, largely every, um, SCS posts and professional and technical posts are advertised as a single job role, as a single competition, and that means then that you do look at those skills Which is really, and competencies yeah. up front. Is that new? Um, well, we, I think there has been more of a move towards um, senior civil service posts. There's been a general move towards single competitions. The issue largely goes back, I think, to the fact that over the years we have had a system that has general service. I think what that recommendation refers to is that we have 65% of the organisation is, is in the general service grade, and then what we have had is internal promotion boards which recruit to that grade. And there has been a, a move away from that. We need to build on that in terms of developing more job roles. Yeah in the same way as the GB civil service has. But we have recruited, um, as I said, more single competitions, more externally, and we have looked at job roles. I would say that a lot of this work requires consultation with the trade unions. The trade unions are, um, and not everybody, is content to move to job roles. And there is a balance, I suppose, between having a job role and, and people being able to to uh, move about and have flexibility within the service. So we definitely want to get to a place, and I think we, we talked about it earlier, you know, um, individual job roles, when you're advertising for them, you can then be very... I think it's absolutely right that people know the job they are applying for, um, what the skills are that we are looking for, um, and that they get a chance to apply for that. I do think that, you know, we do advertise most of our jobs at that level externally, but we don't get the people coming in from outside to take up those roles. Um, we get a few, tends to be in the professional, um, professional areas. So we have got more to do in this area, um, but we're taking the steps in the right direction. And, um, you know, we want to have an energy around the place, uh, around when we're doing our recruitment competitions, um, that actually the recruiting line manager is taking responsibility um, for how they are recruiting, but also puts in ideas about how we're going to, how we're going to broaden our field of applicants. Uh, there is a lot to do. We are on that, we are on that path, um, but we have got a lot more to do. But I think that, you know, we've talked previously here about the contract management work that we are doing, the development work we're doing. You know, we're getting our people um, through assessment centres. 
which uh, the commercial skills uh, assessment centres in Whitehall are running for us. Um, and so we, we, you know, there's an awful lot of work going on, but I don't think any of us would say that we, uh, we I think we would all agree we've got a lot more to do, but we are, we are on that journey. Finally, then, and I'm, I'm looking, looking for the relevant bit, yeah, the, the, the part in which saw the highest uh, increase in vacancy posts was uh, DERA, Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, um, up to about 13%. Um, and it didn't dawn on me until you mentioned Bally Kelly earlier. Is that related to the move to Bally Kelly, or what's the reason that it's such a high level? My understanding is it's largely because of their additional needs, yeah. needs because of EU exit. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and in terms of um, uh, working from home or, or working remotely, um, has one of the lessons that has been learned is that uh, people don't necessarily have to be absolutely. Uh, in, in their office every day. Uh, um, so is that, do, you th do you see that being something that will go, go forward, provide it? Uh they're still delivering the goods. Absolutely. And I do think that, you know, um, somebody may be sitting at a desk in an office. It doesn't mean they're actually doing any work um, or doing the right work. You know, we need to trust our people. Um, we need, of course, to keep in touch with them and know, uh, you know, and actually have that constant dialogue and know people are working. But you don't necessarily need to see somebody. Um, interestingly, uh, a guy phoned me yesterday who works. He's based here in Northern Ireland. He's spent his career here, but he's worked for, he works for the, uh, for the GB civil service, um, and he is currently working in the Department of Health and Social Care on their test and tracing, uh, you know, quite a senior person. He's previously been in the home office and somewhere else, and actually he's spent his time, he, he works here, but he doesn't need to be in London, only very rarely. And, uh, you know, I think they are, that is definitely the way we want to work. Uh, we need the IT to support all of that. We have got good IT, um, but we're now looking to see how we can uh, improve upon that. But that is going to be our working way of the future. Um, as I said, we do need to see a bit more presence in the office, but that is nothing like what we would have seen before. Bally Kelly is a very good example of a fantastic building, um, and you know it is. Uh, you know, people are working in there, but we're now opening up that building as well to other departments to see, you know, for them to use as a connectivity hub. Just a final question. I understand the 13% vacancies that occurred in, in 2019. Now, that's when Brexit was meant to happen. So at the point when Brexit was meant to happen, we didn't have the people in post. So what happened? Why, why were the people not in post when Brexit was about to happen? Well, I mean, my understanding, but I, I need to maybe follow this up, having spoken to Dara, um, but I, my understanding was that we did a lot of uh, internal moves first, and then we had to actually do an analysis of affordability for additional posts, and then that was when there was a sort of a financial bid, if you like, done, and then that was on top of, so resources were aligned to the priority areas, or the planning in particular, and then there was a, a, an understanding of what was needed. So are you saying at the key point when we needed people in post when Brexit was meant to happen, we weren't prepared because of inadequate planning? Would that be a, a reasonable No, I think, I think that what we were doing as departments was, you know, uh, we were moving our people around to fill those critical posts. 
um, because they were, they are, and were critical, and we were moving people around. Everywhere else is doing the same thing. Um, you know, you can't just get people uh, in. Um, you need the right skills, um, and you need the people that are competent to do the job. So we were moving people around. Uh, that was a Brexit posts were a priority, one of the priority posts. And then we, of course, needed other people then to come in to uh, either backfill or to some of them may have been agency. Whatever the issues are, we, of course, then needed other people. But DERA, uh, in, my, in my understanding, will have had the people it needed to deliver that work that it was doing. But you left lots of other vacancies which, which but, were not been addressed. But you have to, you know, you can't just bring in loads of people uh, overnight. Yeah, but you would have known when Brexit was going to happen. Well, I'm not sure that that is necessary. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mr. Harvey. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Mr. Mrs. Scrip. Um, I'm going to go over something that's already been mentioned, but I feel it's important. Um, 1% of staff, 16 to 24 year olds, I mean, that's really not very many school leavers no. or college graduates. Um, and I do say, like, why? I mean, are the jobs not active enough to them? Why are they not wanting to work for you, really? Um, this does obviously lead to problems later on. Um, and would we not be better training up young ones and having uh, keep yeah. them from their 16 to their 70 and then would have yeah. experience? I would not disagree with any of that. We want uh, that age group in the service. We, you know, we want to be representative, um, or, you know, of of life. Um, so we want people in the service. We, we, you know, we weren't recruiting for some time, and that has had a huge, uh, huge implications um, for for our workforce. But we need we need young people, and we are. They are definitely one of the areas that we are really focusing a lot of attention on uh, to get younger people into the service. I don't think it's not that we're in... I think that people do want to come and work for us. Um, it's just that we haven't necessarily been, uh, been advertising jobs. And 1%, that's not going to be hard no, no. to improve on. No. You know. no, no. I, was just, I was just going to say as well that the turnover rate in the civil service is um, much lower than it would be in the GB civil yeah. service, for example. So in addition to not having externally recruited, um, we will also have that there aren't a lot of people moving on. Um, and also then, obviously, that there were changes to the retirement age and there were changes to the pension. Um, so all of that, I think, has, has contributed. But as, as Sue said, we're doing an awful lot of work to try to attract young people, whether it's apprentices, external recruitment, and also said, you know, advertising on social media. Um, if we hadn't had um, COVID, we would be wanting to, we had plans to go to career fairs, to go to schools, to go to, you know, uh, disability organisations, a whole host of things. So we had a, an outreach and marketing plan um, uh, in place, but had to be uh, curtailed. And the thing I would say, so the thing I would say as well is that you know, um, we do need to have more more churn in the civil service. We need to have more people coming in. And actually, from my perspective, in if you know, being former GB civil service, actually their churn is too high. Um, so they are losing people regularly with you know, uh, just at the point you get them developed and ready to go. You know, they're off. Um, people move around an awful lot, and I think. Uh, 
Matthew might be able to confirm that people move around so much that I think what we need here is a balance. We need to be somewhere in the middle. We need to be having more, but more intake than we currently have, more churn. But we, I think, would be a bit nervous at going to the Happy medium. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a, it is, it is, a, it is quite a big issue. They lose a lot of their skills um, through people moving around quite a bit. No, I'm, I mean, I'm glad. It is a need, and we yeah. obviously are adjusting it very well. So, it'll be interesting to see the figure rise as we move. Hope when we come back, uh, we will have a um, progress to report on. The average age has reduced, but it'll, it's, it'll not be overnight. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, can I just ask? Um, the minute across the services in and around there's under a thousand um, required at that grade um, since the audit office reported there's there's actually a hundred more um, civil servants um, under the age of 24 so whilst it'll take a long time there is evidence and hopefully when, when we when we complete the, the recruitment across the staff officer DP and, S, and uh, account, uh, admin officer grades we can then have a look to see what impact that has had around the turn of this financial year. But certainly, you can see that move where, where there's, you know, the audit office reported, I think, 74, and we have um, 171 um, as of now um, below the age of 24. So it is a slow process because of all of the reasons Jill has outlined. But you can just see that the impact of one external competition that we're only really at the start of um, filling the posts at that grade at the minute. That's good. No, if we can get them at 16 and keep them to 70 plus, we'll have plenty of experience. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, can I just ask, in relation to um, uh, paragraph 3.46, um, how do you intend to deal with the gaming and manipulation of promotion lists that are mentioned there? Manipulation of gaming of appointment lists. I mean, how, um, how are you going to address that? Well, I mean, we, in, in HR, we go strictly by the merit principle, and we will only appoint people in order of merit. So we, we, if somebody asks us, if it's a general sort of internal promotion board um, post or um, recruitment competition, we can only go on what? The department asks us so if they say we need x many of people at this grade or one person at this grade it's it goes as that comes into us and we do it strictly on merit we don't move out of a merit list you see on that paragraph it talks about line management and i go back to the point that i made earlier and it's for me it's a recurring point as someone who worked in the private sector Everyone's saying how good it is for people to work at home, um, but it will only be good. You will only get the the results that you're talking about and the performance you're talking about if it's properly managed. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, I used to work in the private sector, and of course, people who who were out in the road selling things had to be driven. Uh, they had targets to meet. Yeah. Uh, they had they, they had figures to present at the end of a month. And if they fell short, then obviously their managers would be asking them questions. But they had to present a case. Uh, 
And I think one of the th one of the things that we we need to bear in mind here is that we we've heard talk about trust and contact and dialogue with managers as, as some of the things you've said in your answers. But I think we need to get it instilled in managers in the civil service that they have huge responsibilities as line managers to manage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and going forward, and I would just sim simply send a note of caution. In the in the report that we're talking about today, there are huge concerns that I would have that hasn't been happening. So the game has to be upped to ensure that the remote working we're talking about actually delivers for me as a taxpayer. Yep, um, I certainly you know uh, wouldn't disagree. I do think we have to trust our staff. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's hugely important that you know if you're in a good working relationship that you have trust and trust you know. Uh, and everything you know but i think of course you have to um and, and there's lots of jobs in the civil service where you are you have to show what you've delivered day in day out um you know and uh that is going to be very important as we move forward with our current working arrangements that we do make you know that, that we are sure that everybody is delivering and the managers are speaking to mm. their teams um but uh you know so far, what we are seeing is in the areas where we can um, record productivity, uh, it is improved. Okay. In, in the, the previous sessions, when you've been in front of this committee, uh, so um, we've been addressing some of the issues of, that we've been dealing with, Lam Web, etc. Yep. In terms of contracts, yep. there are other have been other big high-profile inquiries that we mentioned earlier. Uh, as part of this this session, um, so c can I ask the question? In terms of experience, expertise, skill set, and so on, um, I'm not even sure at times, and, and I have sympathy for civil servants who may not have the experience, being put into position, potentially exposed because yeah. they don't have that experience or expertise. Yeah. Um, and then that leads to, to, to situations that unfold, inquiries, whatever. Um, are we working to, to ensure that that expertise and that experience uh, is there before those people are put into those positions? Yeah, I mean, that is, uh, I think there is partly, um, you need to always look at individual roles um, and you need to look at what, you know, I suppose the level that somebody is going into that role what they need I think we always have to also understand we have got an, a responsibility to help develop people and so when they go into a role uh, you know they have the expertise they need but we've also got to develop them um, and then there are other roles where you need the best expert you can have in that job from day one um, and I think that is really that's a huge uh, a huge part of line management and development of people and making sure that the people who are doing these jobs that you put the right people in with the right skills and the right experience that is a very much a part of where we want to go and mm. i think a move towards more individual job roles being advertised um you know you can then be clear about what you're looking for the skills and expertise and that is what you're trying to get to go into a particular role mm. because it is something we discussed yeah. in previous sessions about the skill set being there yeah. for, for those folk because it is fundamentally unfair for someone, for example, oh. who may have moved from, you know, working in finance to go and look at something that's entirely different and awful. be thrown into D-Band. Awful, awful. I think that is not something that we would want for any civil servant. I think that's a huge responsibility on me. 
uh, as a leader in the Department of Finance, I would not want any of my teams to feel that I was putting them into an exposed position uh, without having the proper skills. Okay. In terms of the, um, so can I ask you, in terms of the, uh, you're being head of the Northern Civil Service HR, um, are you in charge of the, the HR for the entirety of the Northern Civil Service, but housed in the Department of Finance? Is that how it's working? Okay. So, so you have 320 staff? Was um, 350 nearly. 350, okay. So on top of your 350, um, HR Connect, is that, um, those are skills that you buy in, are they? It's a contracted service. Um, so that's, that's managed, as I said, within um, enterprise shared services. Yeah. So are you Delivering quite a lot of the HR, some of the HR processes. Operational, operational. and sort of transactional um, HR services. Well, is that... I mean, is that because the expertise isn't in those 350 people within that core of people, or what? Why is why why is why is HR Connect required when you're 350 people? Um, well, that was a, that was a decision that was taken in 2006, is my understanding, as part of the whole sort of hmm. EHR um, type um, approach, and it was rolled out, I think, between 2000. 2007 to 2010 and when HR Connect was brought in my understanding is that it that there was a saving of around 7% at that point um, it, it's not expertise as such so I'm not saying they're not experts um, by any stretch but it's really the sort of the, the administration yeah. the ad, ad but, operation okay. but, but when there was a saving of 7% at that time how many people were employed in HR and I mean were there 350 people employed in the civil service and HR whenever there's a saving of seven percent so we 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 as next HR are 16 percent less than when there were DHRs the Center for Applied Learning and corporate HR so that was all separate and it all came under one post yep and so that so we have a, a it's around a hundred staff less, sixteen percent and over the year that's sixteen percent less and over the business case period, so there was a five year business case period, um appraisal period, my understanding is that, that was thirty three million savings. Okay. So thirty three million over five years? Yes. Right. So how much are we paying and how long is the contract for HR Connect? So HR Connect's contract uh, was uh, 2006, so it, it expires in um, March 2021, 15-year contract. Mm. Um, and we, are, it was the contract value was around 185 million uh, for that period, and currently the spend is around 206 million. I think the other thing I would say, in so it's overspent by. Well, the other thing I would say, and what I think Jill was explaining, HR Connect provides services for more than just the NI civil service. It's actually providing services for a lot of the ALBs. Um, and payroll And as payroll well. as well. Pay so it's doing more than, uh, I think, just for NICS HR mm. transactional so, services. So the 15-year so contract, instead of being 185, it was 206 million, did you say? 206 million. Mm. So make the point again in terms of the £206 million over that 15-year yeah. period. Um, 
is there not the possibility of that skill set being within the civil service, within the 350, or if the 350 needs to be expanded, uh, as opposed to 185, it's going to climb to 206? So I, I mean, think um, what provides best value for money for the yeah, Northern Ireland taxpayer? Yeah, yeah. Um, the um, the contract, um, you know. I think we will always want some of our services provided, uh, these transactional services, payroll service. I mean, they, it's a, they do a really very, very good job um, in terms of payroll. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine uh, bringing that back in. Um, and they do it for, for, other, for others as well, not just ourselves, for other ALBs. But, but with respect, you, when you say you can't imagine bringing that back in, that's only if they can do it in a more cost-effective way than you could if you were doing it in-house. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so so the contract's coming up for review next year. Yeah. So Are you going to do a piece of work to, the, to, yeah. to look at the option of yeah. that being done in-house as opposed yeah. to buying in so, their their uh, services? Yeah. So part of the work that we will be doing um, is, is, is quite a broad range of work. We'll be looking um, at the NICS HR function and actually seeing whether we've got that quite right. You know, mm. we've moved from... Uh, departments having um, having their own HRs in all those departments into a centralised service. Um, you know, have we gone too far on that? I mean, this is just a discussion that we have. It's not a view that you know I, nece I, I necessarily have views on. But we need to have a discussion about whether we need to um, have a little bit of an HR presence in departments. Um, and that's a discussion that we need to have. And part of that discussion also will be around, you know, the services that we currently get from HR Connect. Should they all be uh, outsourced? Should some of those be in? Do we need them all? Um, so there's a, there's a variety of discussions uh, that will be that we will get on that, that are underway mm -hmm. and that we need to progress to know exactly what we want to procure. Okay. And finally, for me, um, civil service commissioners. Um, have they played a role in helping the civil service transform recruitment uh, and selection procedures? Well, we work closely with the commissioners, um, uh, but it, you know, it, it has been a very, um, in terms of that they have, they, for example, will chair senior civil service recruitment panels. They will um, sign off at various points. So a civil service. Um, recruitment process can't can't go ahead unless the commissioner actually signs it off. Um, they also obviously clearly have a code that we have to comply with. They have codes around secondments and things like that. So, um, I mean, we, we work with them in terms of transformation. We have, and in terms of looking at recruitment processes, I have certainly met with them um, on numerous occasions, so have um, permanent secretaries met with them and, and outlined where we would like to go, our whole range of work. We've um, spoken to them from day one about our people strategy. They're very um, interested in that. But other than that, I can't... I they have a very, so we have, I think we have a very, I would say we have a very clear um, uh, agreement with them about the service that you know about what they about what their role is um, they have that they do have their own I think they have their recruitment principles their recruitment code they have a code that yeah. we comply with um. okay Mr Hillage wants to come back in for a quick
Thanks, sir. Well, it's partly just what you have asked. Sorry. Number right. of questions, sir. So good, good for that. Now, could you just clarify then? Is, is all the payroll paid by HR Connect for this internal payroll? There's, there's no internal. It's all paid by HR Connect. Paid by HR. I think, I think yeah. the prison service has a separate contract, but it's not in-house. Okay. Uh, just on get this clear in my own head, I had asked earlier on in relation to the agency framework being uh, exceeded by £48 million at that stage, and I was told in relation to the work that goes on in the communities, in relation to benefits and various things. Uh, it was everybody's personal choice as to whether they agree the work's good or not, because obviously we're involved in the PIP and Universal Credit on a daily basis, and we have our frustrations, but setting that aside, uh, it then transpired in a question to, I think, Mr Beggs, and that, that DWP had a service level agreement. What what is that service? Does that include pens for some of that agency work, or what what is that? Yeah. So my understanding, but again, I can confirm it with DFC. But my understanding is that they have a service level agreement, and there's a cost recovery in that. So when we say it doesn't, you know, it's not the civil <coughs> Northern Ireland civil service that's paying for that. Yeah. So that agency. contradicts the earlier answer then in relation to. Communities being the reason why we're over over forty eight million. If the, if the work's being done and the money's being clawed back from D, DWP. Yes, but it accounts it accounts for the number of staff. So in terms of what HR deals with, as opposed to the the spend, if you like, in terms of the ask from departments, will still be DFC who come to us and ask us to get from the agency contract. The numbers of people. So you're using the so framework. The department. So you're using the framework, the framework to, rec to recruit those agency staff. Yes. So, they, so that the spend on those agency staff goes through that framework contract. You get it back then when DWP pays the communities for their work. Then. That's my understanding. Yeah. But we can confirm we'll, we'll that. confirm that for you. Right. Um, I can just come in there. Yeah. Uh, yes. Sorry. Um, the, the, the subtle differences between what what was the total spend on call up. Um, many competitions, if you like, against that the agency workers framework contract in gross spend terms versus what what was the actual cost to the Northern Ireland taxpayer, and the difference there would be the cost recovery aspects of the DWP related agency workers. So, in other words, the DFC um, service level agreements with DWP, um, and they operate on a cost recovery basis. Yep, that sounds about right, I suppose. But it's just the right. Would, like, would you like us to do you a short note on? Yeah, I'm happy. To <laughs> really happy to, if you'd like that. That's fine. No? <laughs> okay. I suppose I think what Michelle is saying is that there's there's difference in terms of usage and then cost to the taxpayer. I think I think we're happy to confirm that. In okay. Terms of detail, Thank you, follow up. Mr. Muir. Yeah. Another quick question. Just about the HR. Connect in the contract for that. When did you say that's due to expire? March uh, 2021. Okay. Is there not a risk that will have to be extended in yes. light of the. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, um, back I think in 2016, um, work started uh, around, at that time, there was consideration of 
uh, public sector yeah. shared services project, which mm. was looking oh, yeah. at not just our not just the uh, HR Connect, how we do our shared services, but also looking at the health and education um, areas. And that was chaired by the head of the civil service. That 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 work. About two years later, around the end of twenty, around the end of twenty eighteen, um, you know. We felt that uh, that would be a pro that was going to be a project too far. That was going to be, you know, we need to get our own, I suppose, our own house in order first, um, before we start collaborating with health and education. So at that point in time, around the end of 2018, we moved to a central government transformation program. But of course, by this time now, we've lost a couple of years. So um, that work is underway. We are talking to the provider um, about the possibility of extension. And uh, as we do that, we are looking <coughs> to make um, service, you know, service delivery changes. And we're using our commercial director, who I've talked about here before. And we're also using the um, Crown Commercial Supplier Rep uh, from, from, from the Cabinet Office to also help us yeah, in those negotiations. Um, remembering that, of course, what we'll be looking at for the future is basically the 15 years we've paid for all the costs of the system and everything going forward it will be the service costs um, that we'll be paying and we'll be looking for open book um, accounting can i just ask um, where are hr connect based are they local are they local <laughs> that's a very good question i don't so know H hr connect the, the system is fujitsu and then they subcontract out to capita for the provision of the services. So are these people based in the mainland or are they based here in Northern Ireland? I think they're local. Because so, uh, when, you, when you do a competition um, and when you're drawing up your candidate information booklet, somebody from HR Connect comes along and actually you know, helps you with that process. And then when you're doing interviews, they help you with all of that as well on the day. Mm. So they, um, they may have a bit of both, uh, possibly, yeah, I don't um, know. They are, I mean, it is, it is local, but you may occasionally oh, go yeah. to... Yeah. It's just a concern that this has been raised previously around contract extensions yeah. and stuff like that. <clears throat> I think it's important for me to note that, you know, because yeah. this has been discussed previously and it's Absolutely. still occurring. Absolutely. I think that, you know, you probably do need for a contract of this size yes. and complexity. And also, <clears throat> you know, it it was a contract that was let in 2006. Life has moved on yes. a great deal. We do need to make sure that when we go out and procure our next contract, that we get the best, that we know what we are articulating with the market, with the service that we want to get. That's where we are. I think it, in 2016, if we probably had started with the Central Government Transformation Programme at that time, we would be in a very good place now. Um, our contract management system, uh, that we've talked about for both of these contracts. Uh, you know, earlier on, these would have been flagged much earlier, um, the agency workers and, the, and this contract. So they are, you know, we would have got the spend, we would have known the dates. Sorry. Sorry, Roy. Mr Beggs, quickly. Just, just very briefly, you indicated that you're bringing in experts to help negotiate the extension. Yeah. Um, have you got an alternative? And if you haven't got an alternative, what option do you have? How can you negotiate? So, I mean, there will, you know, we can look to buy a, uh, a shared service, uh, you know, model. Other people have got them. Um, uh, you know, we can we can look at all of that. Um, but I suppose, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things we are looking at as well and talking to the contractor about is a possible extension. 
But it's, I would imagine this would be a short-term extension to, be, yeah, 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 to yeah. allow you to do the piece of work. To allow us to know, uh, you know, we've talked today a lot about, um, also about that uh, line manager relationship, how, you know, we want to be involved in certain things where previously that would have been outsourced. Uh, that all needs to be factored into yeah. the service that we buy. Well, just it would be consistent with the idea of upskilling yeah. the, the civil service and improving capacity and capability within it. Yeah. Um, members, no other members indicated. Just we point on the skill the, in terms of uh, I'm keen to ask this question about governance to drive change and leadership. So I mean is the governance structures in place to drive change? So we have um, we have an, an NICS board um, which uh, meets monthly and that is all of the permanent secretaries along with Jill and um, you know, as uh, a couple of other members, um, that this is a big. This is this is part of the role of the NIC board, so that all departments uh, there is an agreed uh, program of work, and that we're all driving that change program. Um, we have now got you know uh, an interim head of the civil service who will also be very key to all of this, um, and uh, you know actually I think ministers are key as well, and uh, you know about uh, the. The culture they want in their departments. Okay, um, members, I, I take it everyone. There's no final issues, and uh, I wanted to, uh, at this stage, ask Mr. Donnelly or Mr. Stevenson if there are any issues they'd like clarification on before our guests leave us this afternoon. Uh, no, I've nothing at this point, Chair. Mr. Stevenson. He's gone. Yeah. Okay. Well, at that, at that point, then, can I just thank Ms. Gray, uh, Ms. Min. Ms. Woods and Ms. Breen um, for your patience and for Bodens and your uh, time here with us this afternoon. It's very much appreciated and um, thank you very much. And, and, uh, and I think we'd love to come back. I'm sure. Is that before or after Christmas? I was going to say we'd love to come back and yeah. talk to you, you know, give you an update actually on how we are doing. You need to get out more. <laughs> it's very difficult. It's of the day. Very difficult to get out of here. Um, Can I just say I don't always agree with my partner. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> we won't see you before Christmas, okay? Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks. Much. And if we don't see you, happy Christmas. And the okay. same Thank to you. all of you as well. Thank you very much. Okay, Mr. Stevenson, you're free to go. Um, members, um, if you're content at this stage, we'll uh, move into closed session. Great. Great. Assembly. Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. <laughs> <laughs>